So you just flew in here this morning from from Oklahoma? Yeah, from uh, from Tulsa. You were down there chasing turkeys? Yep, I sure was. Uh, a lot of chasing. No killing, unfortunately. Shooting? Actually, uh, Any shooting? Yeah, oh yeah. I did some shooting. Who You were down there at the Mountain Op Cruise. Who was down there for Mountain Ops? Um, Matt. Matt, the bodybuilder? Uh, he's pretty, he's a big dude. He's stout, eh? Yeah, he? yeah, he's a big dude. Appropriate for Mountain Ops, you yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, poster truck. Very cool dude. It was the first time I, um, I got to meet him. And uh, I'm a big fan. He's, he's a good dude. Awesome guy. That whole yeah. company, the whole culture of that company is just neat out of Utah. And, you know, they're just all about outdoors, conservation, family. Totally. And, and you know, and easy to work with. And, and on top of it, a great product. Yeah. You know, I don't consider them a Me Too product. I think they're innovative. And the things that they're coming out with right now, um, you know, from their sleep aids and remedies to... That's my favorite. The slumber. <laughs> the slumber is I, so I awesome. I swear to God, I'm, I'm out of it right now. And I was hoping that those guys brought some slumber because... Uh, I'll, I'm, I'm the type of guy who just can't stop, can't, my brain's always running at yeah. night, you know what I mean? I'm just sitting there just like, all right, I need five hours of sleep, you know, like, and my brain's just going, so slumber, honestly, is kind of rock star for me. Yeah, and you know, it's, it, you test it, you, when they send it to me the first time, I'm the same way, type A personality, I lay down thinking yep. I'm tired, but the next thing I know, I'm grabbing my phone or a notepad and right. I'm writing down notes of what I'm thinking about for the next day or yep. something, you know, just whatever, strategizing, whatever it is, and that stuff, man, it really puts you at ease and makes you feel just like, hey, you can just let go now. Yeah, totally. And that's what I like about that company is that they're always thinking outside the box and being pretty innovative. So they're in Oklahoma and yep. in traditional style turkey hunting, going out in the evening, roosting a bird, putting a bird to bed, and then going in there and trying to hunt them off the roost in yeah, the morning. Yeah, totally. So um, I went down there with my bow, and uh, that was my goal to was to uh, hopefully kill two with my bow. But it's late season. You know, it was late season. We we finished off in the last week of the Oklahoma season. So all these birds had been hunted before. And it was tough. It was really tough. A lot a lot of times the toms would come in, see, see the decoy, or hens would see the decoy and literally go the other way. So we pretty much reaped all the birds that we got in. Um, you know, the guide, uh, this guy to Austin Land, super cool dude. Um, I was pretty much right behind him. I would actually grab onto his shirt, you know, so we were, I felt like a Marine, you know what I mean? That's how the, yeah. that's how the dudes do it, you know? I rolled in behind him, and, uh, you know, we got as close to uh, to the birds as we could, but it was tough. It's so like when a, you it's say, a good way to sharpen your, your hunting skills overall. Yeah, that reaping's kind of like spot and stalk and turkey. And the idea behind it is, if you're calling and you're, you know, in the traditional sense of turkey hunting, you, you sit down or you run and gun where you cut a bird, you hear him gobble. And in turkey hunting, you're reversing mother nature, as we all know, you know, right. in nature, the hens go to the gobbler. Yep. Well, we're trying to reverse that and get the gobbler to come to a hen call most of the time. Right. And you know, the use of calling and then decoys, you know, a lot of guys use like a Jake decoy on top of a breeding hen, or they might have a Tom out there that's all fanned out and, you know, they're trying to intimidate another boss Tom around that area. Yep. So instead of doing that, you tried that for a little bit is what you're saying. It wasn't panning out. So it, you start, you start getting behind a fan and crawling yeah, on it. Exactly. And a lot of times like too, it's like you can get the birds to gobble and sometimes it's just about finding the right bird in the right mood. You know what I mean? So I think we were just, our main goal was to just get inside of his, like his comfort, like his bubble, you know, they'll gobble. But then once you kind of get right in where they you know, that you're sounding loud enough, then, you know, then kind of, you know, can stuff, stuff can kind of happen. Um, but, but for the most part, yeah, we were reaping and we we're coming right up with a fan and trying to get a reaction out of them, trying to get them mad to, to charge in or, or at least get in close enough for, for a shot. Were they, were they charged? Were they being pretty aggressive and territorial? No, they weren't. No, they that. weren't. No, it was more like, we were just more or less using it to get in as close as we can, like hiding behind the fan, you know, and using that also we split the fan and we, you know, 
we could look through it, you know, to see kind of, you know, what was going on. But it was tough. Yeah, I mean, all over the country was tough this year. Starting in the south, I've talked to guys that, you know, were hunting Tennessee, Arkansas, or Alabama, Arkansas, all that entire south, southeastern part of the country. It was cold and flooding down there and and, and still icing up at times, really heavy frost at the beginning of turkey season. And what happens is that is that that just tells a turkey that, hey, everything's starting a little bit later. So when you were in Oklahoma last week, I was in Iowa, north of you, and there was, I I don't know, usually by that time of the year, there should be 70 to 80% of the hens bred, they were telling me. Every time we had a gobbler interested, we would literally hear a live hen call him off of us. It'd be like they'd be gobbling their heads off and we're thinking oh it's getting ready to happen and then you'd hear and they just filter off with them and so that tell that was telling me that it was just one of those deals to where yep. like you're saying if you found the right bird and you had an opportunity but again it was just a all in a nutshell turkey season 2018 was weird and yep. i know my buddy brett down in florida had a pretty successful osceola season but so your dad, so Oklahoma, and was that your first turkey hunt of the season? I know you're getting ready. Yeah, to that was yeah, exactly. That was my first uh, first of the season. I just literally finished up uh, my uh, snowbird season. I just got back from Iceland, so I still got my uh, my winter coat on, and um, it was it was actually the perfect trip to kind of you know set so snowboarding went, aside for a little bit and and uh, you know get into some hunting. You went from shredding in Iceland to come into Oklahoma and calling spring. Turkeys. Yeah, I know, right? It's <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Is. Yeah, I know. It's totally random. Uh, everyone who like follows me on Instagram, I'm like, yeah, I'm in Iceland. And then I'm out in Oklahoma, <laughs> yeah, turkey like, hunting with my like bow. People are like, what the? Well, you kind of let it out of the bag guys. We're, you know, it's another podcast here at life. Go like this life ain't for everybody. And we have a good friend and a, you know, pretty much just a, a, a badass athlete, Olympic athlete, X games, athlete, big air winner, uh, Scotty Lego, he's responsible for representing the United States in the Olympics and the sport, the field of snowboarding. He won the bronze medal for America. He's won gold, silvers, and bronzes all across the board in different um, contests within the X Games. I'm going to let him talk more about that as we go on. But again, here we are with with the hunting lifestyle that brings two completely opposite um, I wouldn't say personalities, but lifestyles together. You know, I didn't grow, I grew up right in the, right in the mountain, Scotty of, you know, oh, yeah. of Lake Tahoe and you, totally. you you've I come here Tahoe. all the time. Tahoe's great. And I didn't, I didn't grow up skiing. Right. You know? So I, I, it just, but then me and you meet, we met through a, a, co, a sponsor that yep. we were both part of back in the day and we hit it off in Kansas. We meet there for a mallard hunt, you and myself and Keith Allen and Chris Cummings and the rest is history. Yep. Yep. I still look back on that, on that hunt. I learned so much. We got to do it again. Well, we're getting, we we're talking today at lunch about, you know, different places that we can meet this year and, and, you know, experience that again of the power of ducks. And to me, you tell me if I'm wrong, but turkey hunting's cool. And I, and I like yeah. it. I can jive with it, but yeah. there's just something about being able to sit in a blind with your buddies and talk and, and, and be a little bit boisterous and, oh, no, it's and, great. and, and, and then still experience the power of yeah. mother nature, you know totally. what I mean? It's actually, it's a perfect little break for me because I do a lot of archery, um, archery hunting. Season opens up September 15th. So I've been sitting in a stand for, you know, a solid 20 days by myself, you know. Uh, and when duck season opens up, I'm just like, oh my God, I cannot wait. You know, you get up, you know, you're going out with your buddies. You can talk, you know I mean? All of a sudden, you know, when, when the duck's coming in, all right, shh, shh, you know. And uh, it's just a, it's a good, it's a really good break from, from bow hunting too. Yeah, and you know, bow hunting and turkey hunting are kind of the same. You're by yourself most of the time. You're quiet. Yep. Or obviously, with bow hunting deer, you have to pay more attention to your your wind and your scent and all of that because right. 
they're using their you know their sense of smell a lot more than a you know turkey doesn't even use it yeah i'll tell you what if turkeys could smell you never kill you would one. never kill one yeah <laughs> their eyesight's amazing it's unbelievable yeah it's unbelievable and you and when you start to like as a duck hunter you know you can get away with like if you're in timber, you can kick water and time it right because you know the ducks aren't going to see you or they hear that thrashing of the water and it's natural to them. Right. Um, you can move around in the blind because you're more covered or you're in the shadows. Yeah. Turkey hunting, I mean, you got to be you got to be on your A game yep. to read their body language, their posturing, and know, like, I can move right now or I can shift my gun a little bit because I think the tom is going to come in from a different direction. Or There's just so much that goes into it, and it really does – it really does – test your hunting skills right it's good i think it's yeah it's all around like uh a good yeah it just kind of hones your hunting skills a little bit you know you gotta be quiet you know you gotta you gotta uh you know make a good shot you know you gotta be good at calling uh yeah all of the above <laughs> and, and when you talk about honing your hunting skills are you at this point in your life right now, are you dedicated to your craft and your skills as an outdoorsman? Is that what you're trying to improve on oh, every day? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. I'm always researching. I think like some of the funnest stuff, uh, I love learning. I love learning about, you know, about the animals and different techniques. Um, you know, I'm from the East coast, so it's actually almost hard for me to relate to, you know, what you guys do, you know, you guys get into so many ducks, you know, it's like, I scram. I got to work so hard for a limit. When I get a limit, you know, is it's a great day. You know, it's an unbelievable day, um, and you know, just different techniques all across the country. It's, um, yeah, I love it. Definitely, definitely, um, definitely one of my biggest passions for sure. And you're you're even talking now that you're starting to get into land development, and you you own a pretty a really pretty piece of property in the state of New Hampshire, and you're starting to really you know farm that and manicure that for wild game are you and what are you talking about are you talking food plots and 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 cutting shooting lanes are you are you building it for waterfowl what do you got going on on that property yeah i mean um a little bit of everything you know i i bought the property pretty much for uh for my own little chunk of land you know um so i'm doing some food plots i've, I've done food plots for the last couple of years but now i i brought in um some people from um some wildlife management specialists and uh from the uh, university of new hampshire um kind of had the pros come in walk the land with me also with a forester, you know, so I'm doing a lot of like a little bit selective cunning, a lot of, a lot of work with a chainsaw. Um, I've tried planting some Japanese millet because um, uh, I have some flooded zones and some white oaks and stuff like that. So it's we get a lot of wood ducks in there and I really want to suck some mallards in for whatever reason. Mallards never, never come to that, to that little section of land. Right. Um, so, you know, I do everything I can to, to, to bring the birds to play. And, are you ready to give up what you've done? I mean, literally, you've been a, a, a staple in the competitive snowboard world for so long. Yep. And if people follow you or, or look you up at this point and they just look at some of the images of you, the places you've been, the guys you've competed with, the victories you've won, the close calls that you've lost, the injuries that you've faced, just the, the you know, it's easy for us to watch the Olympics and see you and, and the guys flying off these half pipes and doing these insane tricks, right? Or like Tony Hawk back in the day and skaters and sure. Palin Peralta, all that stuff. Yeah. But there, there is, that's, it's, it ingrains you. Like you're literally training nonstop. You have to be in tremendous yeah. shape to do what you're doing. I mean, like I wouldn't even, you know, I don't even like the word train because it's literally a lifestyle. I grew up doing, that's all I have ever known and cared about. And to be great at something, I believe that you have to love it because it, you know, to be great at something, you have to 
dedicate yourself so much. And if you find it, if you find it to be a job, you're just not going to put the effort. And then that's what really separates, you know, um, you know, the good guys from the great guys that end and, um, you know, the mental game is obviously one of the, one of the biggest, I believe. And so what was your, what were your strong points as a competitor? Not the mental game. <laughs> you were mentally um, weak? Uh, no, I mean, you know, I just, some people thrive under pressure and sometimes I did, but a lot of times I kind of cracked under pressure. I was kind of, I would win a lot of practices. I would win a lot of qualifiers. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I would kind of, I would kind of blow it. You know, a lot of times I would fall on my last hit, you know, and it's, you know, it's like the most, uh, heart wrenching thing when you fall in the contest, like you dedicated like that week, you know, to, to landing these two runs, you know? And, uh, you know, when you fall in the contest, it's just like, oh, my God. It kind of felt like when I uh, missed that turkey the other day in Oklahoma. Kind of relating it to back I literally, I was like, this actually feels like me falling in a contest. <laughs> well, it is because you look, you're, as a competitor, and, and I don't like to bring the word competitiveness into hunting, but when you're mono mono with that animal, all right, and we think we have the advantage because we have all this high, you know, high-tech gear and guns right. and bows and everything that we've established ourselves as the top of the food chain. And it's awesome to me that we still get humbled. And to me, I'm totally. looking at it in your space. It's, it's got to feel good sometimes to be humbled by that mountain because otherwise you would, you wouldn't do it as much. I mean, you, humility has from that mountain has to keep you going. I'm going to get back on that mountain. Oh, for someday. sure. It's a great motivator. You know what I mean? It's a great motivator. I think, you know, your biggest lessons come from, you know, from your failures, you know? So like, Every time that I would fall in a contest, where I'd be like, "All right, why? Why did I fall? Look at everything. You know, um, did I choke? Do I really just actually physically need to practice this trick more? Did I overamp? Was was I going bigger than I was? You know, a lot of times I would overamp. You know, I'm like, all right, I would just kind of like, kind of go a little bit psycho. You know, I would go bigger than I was in in practice, which kind of defeats the purpose of practice. You know what I mean? I should be doing exactly what I'm doing in practice. So. Um, you know, but uh, I got lucky a few times too. So you know, so it tell all, all comes, um, you know, full you circle. Wins and, yeah, exactly, full circle. But you say you got lucky a few times, but I mean, to be on the podium and hear the national anthem, and you are an Olympic medalist, that doesn't just happen, right? <laughs> no, it, X Games medals don't just happen because it's the cream of the crop, the best of the best in the world. The X Games is an accumulation of the best snowboarders, the best. Um, action sports stars in the world whether it's the summer x games or the winter x games you can't just go in there and say oh actually i I mean yeah totally i mean x games actually believe it or not is i mean it's not it's every year but they actually have the biggest the biggest and best riders you know olympics is like all right you can only you can only bring four u.s guys in all reality there's way more than four u.s guys who are in contention for you know for meddling um and so, you know, other countries like Norway and Canada and Japan, you know, they're all stacked. Um, so, you know, a contest like X Games has literally just the best of the best. Um, so there's a lot of weight in, and um, it's a big contest for sure. And give me a little bit of your history in the X Games. I mean, I could sit here and and when I read some of this stuff about what you've done, I mean – You've taken first place in several, you've won several gold medals in big air contests, including the X Games. You won the Super Pipe uh, in X Games. And the yeah, gold actually, medal. I actually won a, um, they did like, it was almost like the equivalent of like the best tail whip. They did that at like Summer X Games, you know, they did the best method. So I won that. That was all like fan voted and semi judged. Uh, I got a silver and slope style. 
Um, I think Sean won. I got second, and Mikel Bang, who's my favorite rider, got um, got third. Um, that's pretty much the only time I beat him. So you know, I just casually said that on in the interview. <laughs> uh, um, I've got a uh, you know bronze in in X Games, and then I got another silver. I think. Um, yeah, you've won so. two. You've won. You've won a silver in the Super Pipe too in X Games in, in Aspen in 2011. What is the Super Pipe? Is that just that what you see in the Olympics, the half pipe event? Yeah, exactly. It's just half pipe, you know, but. Originally, when, when, you know, it used to be an 18-foot. So when it stepped up to a 22-foot, we're like, well, what do we call it now? Oh, a super pipe, you know. So that's just, you know, just a half pipe. Was that a hard adjustment to make? No, not at all. You know, I remember actually before it even was at 18, I was a little kid. I've been doing this for a while, you know. Um, and one of my idols, Terry Hawkinson, who's still unbelievable at snowboarding, uh, complete legend, super talented, just kind of one of those, like he's, you know, Norway Viking blood type guy um i remember coming up to him and he's like you know like 18 foot walls were just just coming into it you know they're big walls he's like you know it just feels you know small i want it to be i want it to be bigger you know and i remember me riding up the walls it felt like it took me like a minute to get to the top and i was just so scared of how big the half pipe was and i was so amazed that he said that he wanted it to be bigger and i was like oh my god <laughs> this guy's crazy <laughs> literally he yeah. had to be no, he was just so damn good, you know. He was just that much talent. Yeah. Now, was he back in the days of, like, Sean Palmer and Terry Kidwell? Exactly. Yep. That, that. Yep, that generation. He was above, uh, uh, younger than, you know, Kidwell, but right in Palmer's uh, generation. So, like, you know, Mini Shred Palmer, he's a legend around this area. Oh, yeah, Sean Palmer is a legend for sure. I mean, he's done it in snowboarding and in racing and in all of his X Games pursuits. I mean, he's he's kind of like that all-around action star he's, as well. Yeah, he's unbelievable. Do you, when you and a badass i mean like great dude he'll, he'll be at the he'll be at the top of the half pipe well back in the day you don't no one really does this anymore because the level of competition is just way too in, intense but this is actually when maybe snowboarding was probably cooler uh he would literally slug beers at the top of the half pipe before you drop and then he would go and win you During know or like he would be doing a border cross and be so far ahead on the last jump um, you know, he would do like a seven or like kick out a sick method or three, you know what I mean? Like just to have that style, like you're way out in front, you, you know, you hit the jump at the end and, and do something cool. It's, uh, he had a lot of style. Yeah. And he had, I mean, he had that flair and he had that personality that when you watched him snowboard, he was gravitating and he was engaging to where there's certain athletes that do that to you in, in the history of sports that it had been. In my case, you know, there was a lot of athletes that I would watch growing up that would bring me into where I wouldn't miss anything that they did, whether it was Mike Tyson, there was Magic Johnson, there was Michael Jordan, there was George Brett. There was guys in a bunch of different sports. And then in the in the action sports, I even though I sucked at everything that I ever tried, yeah. I used to live and die Christian Hassoy oh, yeah. and Tony Hawk and Mike McGill and Steve Caballero and Lance Mountain. And yeah. Just, and, and then whole bo it, Bones Brigade. Uh, the whole Bones Brigade, Powell yeah. and Peralta. And then you go into it, motocross and you had Ricky Johnson and Jeff Ward and Sean Carmichael and, and all of the guys that, that – you know, we're just, they, they wanted to make you watch that sport. And right. that's what guys like you do. So when, and mini shred had that, but when you watch a guy with a lot of passion, do what he's good at. That's why when I, I can kind of see it in your face. When I talk about medals, you don't really give it, you don't care. You, you were, you like to win. No, honestly, I, I, I do, you know, and it's something cool to say, you know what I mean? And a, a lot of my career, but the biggest thing for me, what drives me honestly is to have the respect of my peers. Like, I want like a rider like Mikel Bang or Terry Hawkinson 
to be like, that was sick. You know, like that literally motivates me. And I swear to God, like I like it's awesome to win a contest, but that's not my motivation. You know, that helps with sponsors and you know what I mean? It's cool and it's fun. Don't get me wrong. There's no better feeling when you land a contest or, you know, get on the podium. Um, but that's what motivates me at snowboarding. I want, I want the respect of my peers and, um, I want to, you know, I want to push myself in snowboarding and, uh, you know, get better. It's fun. So then it does matter though, that when you go down your accreditations as, in your credentials as a snowboarder, you've won a lot more than what you really share. Like if you talk about the dew tour, would you consider yourself one of, I mean, you were one of the most successful riders from, oh, you know, from 08 until, 12, 13. I mean, you won several medals in the Dew Tour. What's the difference? Is the Dew Tour an accumulation of the top riders too? Yeah, Dew Tour is the same thing. You know, um, the only reason why the Dew Tour is maybe not as big as X Games is just because it doesn't have the, you know, ESPN backing of it. You know, it was like NBC or whatever, you know. It's like you got X Games. It's like, that's such a big deal because um, there's so much, uh, so much TV time that comes with it. You know, the sponsors. It's like you do well. You could like, fall in every contest and like be a bum but you go out and you win x games and then you get hurt after that or whatever your sponsors still are like you know extremely pumped with you really yeah because you know millions of millions of kids are um are watching you and uh you know it's a super super influential group who actually buys the stuff that you know that they see you wearing and riding and you were consistently on the podium in the Dew Tour. And then that turned in, if correct me if I'm wrong, but that turned into a, a strong, strong bond with Mountain Dew, the brand, where they became a huge sponsor of yours for yep. several years. Yep, yep, totally. I, uh, I was part of Mountain Dew. Had a lot of, lot of uh, energy drink sponsors. Hello, I was sponsored by this company called Rip It. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see it. Naked Juice, uh, Rockstar, Mountain Dew. Um, it just kind of comes with, with action sports, you know? Yeah. So you were a rock star athlete at one time too. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. Did you uh, did you ever do any crossover sports, or was it always snowboarding? No, I'm no never, nothing crossover. You know, I mean, I always had my, you know, my passions, my hobbies, and stuff I would do on the side, but I've never considered that crossover. I used to race BMX when I was little, and I played every, every team sport as well. But, um, yeah. So answer this question the best that you can. I've always wondered this. What is it that has made Sean White the longevity of his career? Was he just that much better than everybody, or did he work that much harder than everybody, or is luck involved, or what? What made him? I know that you've competed against him a ton. Yeah. What What is your opinion of Sean White, and what What did he bring to the sport of snowboarding? Sure. Um, well, first of all, Sean's extremely talented. He is. Yeah, he's extremely talented. He's one of the best boarders ever. Uh, he started off skateboarding. He's super good at at uh, skateboarding. He's probably going to try for the Olympic team when skating comes, you know, in the next Olympics. Um, so what separates him from the rest of the pack is um, kind of two of those things. You know, he's uh, extremely dedicated. Um, is like one of the most competitive people that I've that I've ever met. Um, and his mental game. I mean, he's one of the most clutch. Uh, honestly. I want to put him in the highest caliber of all, all athletes, all sports. I really do. I'm so damn impressed by, by his snowboarding and his mental game and his clutchness. You know, uh, he can really just bring it when he, when he needs to bring it. So um, as a competitor of his, you never, you never took anything away from him. He had your respect. 
as one of his peers, one of his competitors. Yeah, for sure. You know, I had, you know, of course, you got to respect Sean, you know. So are you at the top of the half pipe doing what mini shred Palmer used to do? And are you guys joking and riffing? Up yeah, there? exactly. And we he's are. Doing and, and Sean is too. He's back and forth. No, or is he just like, that was, that's what separated Sean. He was just know? in his, in his so tunnel. He was, uh, he's a loner, you know, Sean's a total loner. You know, we would all, we would all be hanging out at the top and that also helped with nerves too. If we're sitting around joking and stuff like that, you know, uh, that helped me with my nerves. You know, if I, if I was there being by myself, I did the worst. You know, I got kind of inside my head, you know, you kind of tense up a little bit, um, you know, staying loose and hanging and and uh, and chatting with your friends um, was a good thing. And then also it's fun. You know, it's like we're all competing against each other, but at the same time, you're really competing against yourself. I mean, like you have the tricks that you have and, you know, it's a judge sport. So, you know, it's not like racing or or, you know, fighting or anything like that. I don't know, you know, Um but Sean was very competitive, and he kind of looked at it like that, you know. It kind of, kind of does, you know. So uh, I think that's what separates him, and that's what makes him, um, you know, one of the best. So at the caliber you were at, do you ever think, like, do you ever wish that you would have been more like that, of more of that loner status to put you into that that realm, or, or you just were, you were just, that was how you competed. You were, bo- you were more apt to yeah, be Yeah, I mean, that's just him. me, you know what I mean? That's just me. You know, I'm going to be me. Regardless, I, I can never do uh, do what Sean does or, or the way he does it. You know, it's just that's just not my personality to go against everything that that, you know, who I am. Um, so, uh, no, I don't. So in the in the history of snowboarding, would is it safe to say that snowboarding really caught its wind and its momentum in maybe the late 80s, early 90s? Or when did snowboarding really catch on when Kidwell and Burton and and all these guys were really getting it up I mean, there. It, yeah, I mean, it really, I don't know. That was pretty much before I was born, I think. You know, like, kind of, yeah, late late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, it was it was big. And, and um, it was kind of known as, like, the rebel sport, you know, and kind of attracted a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people from different demographics. And, yeah. What, what are the top, give me the top three snowboarders. It's so, it's is so, it too tough? Well, that's what well, I'm saying. I mean, all right, so if, if you're judging so a contest, it's almost impossible to pick one of you guys because it all looks so technically well, the, maybe, the same. Yeah, well, maybe uh, through your eyes. Through my eyes. Yeah. I'm not a trained So judge. I actually judged um, I judged Dutour for, for a year, and I judged X Games, too. Um, and uh, for me, it's it's easy. You know, there are obviously going to be, you know, people who say stuff at the end of it, you know. Um, but that might come down literally to like a little hand touch or something like that. Um, but it's easy for me, you know, but as far as my favorite riders go, that's such a tough one because I'm influenced by so many, so many riders. I literally was thinking about kind of making a list and almost publicly thanking them for, for their inspiration and, um, and kind of motivation for, you know, for me and in my career. Um, yeah, there's so many good riders out there. It's just, it's would really, Sean, really would hard Sean to be on that list? Yeah, definitely. Would Vito? Uh, I, I love Louie as a person, but not as a snowboarder. No, not a, he didn't. He didn't inspire you. No, not quite. But he was an amazing snowboarder. What about the the pioneers or the trailblazers? Is like I mean, like, is, is like there's riders like you know Palmer for sure, um, but not not really. I respected him as as a competitor and you know um, what he did, but he was never a true inspiration for me. So. In, uh, inspiration: Terry Hawkinson, uh, Mike Michaelchuk, Danny Cass, um, 
uh, there's so many good right. You know, Jake Blaveld, uh oh my god, Bjorn Linus, you know, the four mate back in the day. Um I literally could go on for so long. Uh Nicholas Mueller, Gigi Ruff, Travis Rice, uh, you know, John Jackson. Uh I, I mean I could literally go on. There's a lot of riders who who are amazing and uh that are super super good. And I mean in a to say that you know, the way that you competed was that, you know, that happy-go-lucky that I got all my passion, everything's here, but to keep my nerves straight, I'm not going to be like just all uptight. And and I kind of see that in your everyday life now. You make everybody feel comfortable around you. And when when you, you know, I'm, I'm going into something here that was a little bit controversial in your career. You have a kind of a joking personality. You like to joke and cut up and, and be a smart ass once in a while here and there, just like we all do. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit about what happened after the, the Olympic gold medal. You're in the village and the controversy took place of a picture being taken of you with your medal yeah. and with a female. And then you, you got literally kicked out or removed from Olympic village. Right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. You, you got it. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, I won the medal. Um, I was partying that night. I, you know, I'd been sober for you know, six months going into it. And, um, so obviously I'm going to go up and celebrate one of my little, it's the happiest, happiest moment, you know? Um, so I was out partying and some chick came up to me and was like, Hey, like, can I take a photo of your medal? Like a lot of people did that, you know? Um, it's like, for sure. You know, she's like, can I, she's like, um, she's like, can I like, uh, like bite it down here, you know? So like, and take a photo. I was like, sure, you know, whatever, you know? And she's like, lift up your shirt, you know? So I lifted up my shirt, was partying, whatever. Someone took a photo, literally didn't think anything of it no one did yeah actually literally no one did and then uh you know i got a call from my agent in the morning and sir she's like you are in big trouble and i remember actually i specifically told her i'm like no i'm not i'm like i'm whatever you say right now i'm like nothing can get me down like i literally yeah i'm like i was just you know still running on a high and uh she said that you know this photo came out whatever and i was like oh god like what 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 photo did they take you know what i mean like and when I saw the photo, I'm like, what? This is a, what? Are you serious? This is it? Wait, where's the other one? You know, like, or or whatever, you know? And uh, so uh, at that point, when I found out in the morning, so someone had taken the photo, sent it to TMZ, like that night. Um, probably made a little bit of money on it. Still don't know who it is. Um, TMZ posted it, you know, United States Olympic Committee, got a hold of it and literally booked my flight before I had, before I'd woke up in the morning, um, and they wanted me out. So as an Olympic athlete, I had the right to go to trial pretty much there and to fight, you know, to kind of fight for my, for my stay. But a lot of people who were smarter than me told me that I should probably leave, kind of get out of the limelight a little bit. Um, so it was a bummer. You know, I, I wanted to go check out all the other sports, uh, cause leading up to it, you know, we didn't stay in the Olympic village. We could have, but we wanted to kind of get out of the Olympic village state, say you were staying next to a bobsledder who won a medal. He's going to go out and he's going to rage. And if he's in the room next to you the night before, you, you know, night before your contest, you know, like you don't want that. that would be the worst thing. So we rented a nice house, at, you know, in Vancouver and we separated ourselves. So I actually didn't get to get the full experience. You know, I got to do opening ceremonies and obviously competed and, and, um, and got to go up on the podium. Thank God. Uh, you know, national anthem played, which was awesome. But, um, 
you know, I wanted to go check out some hockey games and, you know what I mean? And get the whole experience. Um, instead I was flying back on a plane. <laughs> were they going to try to take your medal away from you or was that it? They were just wanted you out of there. No, no, no. They were, no, they, yeah, they just kind of wanted me out of there. There's no way in hell they're going to get my to me. To me, I, I mean, obviously you're partying and you're on, I mean, that's the highest part of your career at that point. I mean, you've won an Olympic medal, which every kid dreams of representing their countries in, in one way or the other in the Olympics. Yep. You actually are gifted and talented and dedicated enough to your, to your sport to win a medal. Of course you're going to go out and celebrate. And it almost sounds to me like I've done some like, you know, reading up on this and it almost sounds like a setup to me. It just, it's just weird that a female would walk up to an athlete and want to do that with herself. Yeah. Why put herself in that, that, that positioning of what she did and right. where she, where she right. how she got in that position and how she put the medal right. on. It's just all weird to me. And right. I was in that. And I think that a, a lot of guys would have probably been just like, Hey, yeah, whatever, you know, it's happy go lucky. Cause when you're, when I guess you're, we can, you know, we can leave it up to the people here on the podcast and you can look up the photo, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I will say this though, you know, there I was, you know, I was representing uh, United States. I wasn't just representing myself. So regardless if I thought it was bad or not, I'm still representing like, you know, uh, you know, the ladies, the grandmothers, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, you know, people who, you know, wouldn't find that appropriate. There's no um, doubt. There's no doubt that you're not that kind of a person. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying that. Yeah, you know, it was like, yeah, it seemed like a setup for sure. It just seemed like yeah. I, I, I know you for the last seven or eight years and I, I know that you like you have a personality to be out there and you like to joke around. You're not like some like arrogant, stuck up person that that's going to be like, of course, if somebody says, yeah, get a picture, who cares? Right. And I, then all of a sudden, I've never turned down a photo. Yeah. You, you, know? you would have looked worse if you would have like pushed her out of the way and said, what are you doing? You right. Know? It's like, right. It's a weird, it's, it's almost, it's yeah, a then I would have got the photo of my hand on her head and <laughs> yeah. And then they would have got that and then, but, but maybe, maybe the right thing to do is have your agent with you or your security with you to be yeah. able to say, yeah, and yeah, that's totally. why, that's why celebrities get a bad rap because somebody will see them in public and they'll go up to them and they'll say, Hey, can I get a picture? Can I get an autograph? And that celebrity has any reason in the world to say no. Right. And then right. when they do, what are they? They're the biggest right. people, you know, yeah, but they're, know. sometimes you got to protect yourself and you're, you're the guy that's always yeah, let's get a picture. Yeah, let's get this. Yeah, I'll sign this. I've seen right. you're like a celebrity, especially up on the mountains. I mean, people recognize you all over the world and you're going to get asked for a lot of photos. Yeah. And just that one photo, it kind of, you're back on a plane yeah. to New Hampshire, but yeah. <laughs> it was February. So you probably still had a little time to get, get in the woods a little bit. Or when does deer season no, come? I didn't, uh, no, I uh, didn't. No, when I'm competing, I, I really didn't get that. My, my season's pretty much done um, like first week of November. Um, so you know, we get a little early season, you know, bow hunting and then like, you know, early season, early season duck, but I never got any late season duck hunting until just, just recently. Um, you know, when I kind of stopped competing and now I just more or less film and, and kind of create my own content and do these big air shows and, and, um, I'm just doing all kinds of random stuff. I don't even know. I can tell you, you what, you... what my plan is for next year is always something that comes up. I'm always going somewhere doing something. You just said the two words that are kind of my favorite part of what you did, what you still do as an extreme athlete, big air, um, you know, on a motorcycle, the tricks these guys are doing now off of these super ramps and these super jumps. Yeah. The thing, the, the big air competitions that you guys do on these snowboards, when you, when you're at the top of that mountain or the top of that run, yeah, you have a certain amount of, of momentum to gain before you hit the flat and then start to climb up onto that yep. jump. Are you listening to music when you're on the top of that? Do you have headphones in jamming out to some of the most, 
motivating music you can or are you just in are you just quiet and you're in your own space up there or are you still joking around with your buddies when you're getting ready to launch yourself in the air like that yeah no i mean uh, a lot of people listen to music it's just not my thing i swear to god i've done it i've tried it a few different times but i uh a i don't like the chords b i like to talk with my friends i'm, I'm never riding by myself i'm always riding with friends you know what i mean it's like chair of banter and you know what i mean and yo what are, what are you gonna do for this trick you know like and and i like to talk and and Knowing you, you would uh, unstrap your bindings and start dancing. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> start a dance party up right, on the mountain. Right, right. No, we've done a lot of dancing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're on the yeah. top of that mountain. How how fast is a snowboarder like yourself? How fast do you get? Have they recorded you going down that hill, approaching the super jump? Oh, I don't know. Um, I think that they did. Like I was out in Ar- the Arctic Challenge out in Norway. It was a big quarter pipe contest put on by Terry Hawkinson, who I mentioned earlier. And they did a. Um, they were trying to set the the world record for the highest air. So they kind of had it mathematically. They did like a, um, I forget how many like kilometers an hour it was, but that was the only time I've ever really checked my speed going into it. But there's some like funny apps and stuff like that, but we don't really pay attention. It's more a feel. There's more feel for it. You know, you hear the wind, you know, you feel the, the wind pressure, you know, on you. And uh, just, um, I'm not sure how fast we're going, but, you, you know, probably you could- like 35, 40, somewhere in between there. Really? Yeah. So you hit that jump going 40 miles an hour and how, how high, what's the highest you've ever gone on a snowboard in your big air competitions? Oh, I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to, I guess, give scale for the people who, who are listening there, but all right. So I guess like a big jump we would consider. So you measure it from the lip where you actually take off to the knuckle. The knuckle is right where the landing starts. Um, you know, a, a decently big jump would be like a 70 footer, you know, 70 feet. You actually have to clear to make it to the landing and the landing is super long, depending on how, how deep you take it, you know, and height wise, you know, you could, you know, go anywhere from, you know, maybe 40, 50 would be absolutely giant, but yeah. You, you've went 40 feet up in the air. I don't know. Maybe I'm sure I have. Yeah. I mean, that just seems that's, that's high as hell, dude. Yeah. You, you're jumping 40 feet in the air and you're doing flips and these different trips or do you just stay straight on the board? You're just up there with one. Well, the first time you hit the jump, you're definitely straight air or do a 360, you know, to test the speed to make sure that, you know, you're not going to come up short or overshoot. Um, but yeah, you know, we're, we're spinning and, and uh, flipping and stuff like that. And what, what is your favorite trick to do on that? Is there a certain trick that you were known for in a big air competition or is it called the best whip competition? What is... What are you doing in a big air competition? No, do they just like judge a, you on how far you go? Um, no. Well, I mean, that's part of it, you know. I mean, style's part of it. Execution, like how you take off, make sure you don't pre-spin. You know, how's your landing? You know, did you put it down, stomp it? Um, you know, uh, did you get a lot of pop in the jump? Did you grab the whole way? There's a lot of factors, but um, main thing is style and what trick you did and how you executed it, you know. Um, that's that's really how you're judged. And we the camaraderie we started with this and i went into the snowboarding after you started talking about what you're doing on your property and the passion that you have for that and how now you know at 30 years old you're kind of i don't want to use the word retired but you kind of bro you did not just say (laughs) you did not just say that bro but i mean at, at 30 years old you're kind of retired from having to 
to go out and worry about competing. You still go out and do big air shows. You still go out and do, you know, uh, snowboarding shows to where you bring this, your, we'll talk about what you're doing now, bringing the show to the mountain yep. and putting on, you know, displays for people. But a lot of your time now is going into that, that property and that the Scotty Lego evolution is now he's taking that passion from the mountain and he's putting it into, into his own piece of property, his own piece of that mountain. Yeah, for and, sure. And you, you were, you were known because you had started something that I, you know, that I compare to what we do in hunting with duck camp and the camaraderie. You actually started a, a, a club of snowboarders called friends. Oh right? yeah. A crew. Yeah. We started a, we started a crew uh, called the friends crew where essentially we were all just good friends, you know, the same age, you know, we would all compete, you know, uh, with each other. And uh, those guys had similar sponsors. I was always kind of the dude who had random, you know, random sponsors from from them. So they would get, like it would be like sponsored by Burton, you know, and they would get a sick Burton house, and I would sometimes crash with them, or we would get our own house, you know. We'd all stay together, film. Uh, we would do a lot of filming, and we started this crew. We were just like you know, we didn't want to turn it into anything. We just wanted to start a crew, and make some stickers, and all of a sudden we started getting the following, and and we were known as as the Friends Crew, and. Uh, and then eventually we got to a point where we're like, you know, we should, we should make something, you know, like let's just do something cool. Let's start a company. And, um, you know, all kinds of ideas were started from anywhere from, you know, snowboards to outerwear to, to shoes to, you know what I mean? And we just kind of had a big brainstorm. And, um, one thing that we, you know, we all had in common besides, besides snowboarding was music. And, uh, we're like, you know what, dude, how sick would it be to, to start a headphone company? Uh, and so we did. And uh, it eventually ended up getting kind of crazy because we, uh, you know, we're we're out there grinding. You know, we're on the um, uh, snowboarding a bunch, so we couldn't be in the office, you know, doing the day to days. You know, um, so it came to a point where like the uh, the men's headphone uh, market was super saturated. You know, but there was this gap. No one was doing women specific headphones, um, and especially like high end. Uh, so we capitalized on that and, um, you know, we, we were, we were super successful. Uh, we were in all, uh, all Best Buys, most all Apple stores. Um, and, uh, it was pretty much just due to bad management in the office where we kind of, you know, we kind of, kind of failed to the bummer, but was the headphones company called friends? Yeah, it was called friends. Yep. Now, do you guys, is Friends the one that this group of guys that you're starting this new deal with where you're bringing this aerial show to these mountains? No, no, I wish. That would be really cool. Everyone else is kind of doing, kind of went their separate ways. You know, Kevin, uh, one, you know, one of the French group, Kevin, uh, suffered a, a TBI, traumatic brain injury, um, and his life changed, you know, obviously after that. He could no, no longer do it professionally, so he's out public speaking. Um, you know, one of the riders, uh, Luke Matrani, broke his neck. Uh, so he's not doing it professionally anymore. Um, Jack Matrani has has pursued like he's like the main host at X Games, Summer X Games, uh, killing it. He's uh, he's one of my best friends, also my best man at my wedding, and uh, he's doing all kinds of stuff with with filming and editing, and also host um, him and Danny host a music festival called the Friendly Gathering, which is actually picking up a lot of traction. We do it in Vermont and, and have thousands of people come out to uh, to a festival that we started. It's pretty cool. So, yeah. so what is the the new thing you're involved in? You're taking a show, a light show, and a DJ, and kind of mixing music, and uh, where you guys are just going, you're packing the mountains. You're getting four or five thousand people on the. Yeah, we're having mountain. some. I mean, our, probably our bigger show was like seventy five hundred people up in Boyne, Boyne, Michigan. Uh, 
so essentially we have this one big jump on every you know every saturday night pretty much every weekend we would go to a different different mount different spot uh it would be uh put on by sam adams it would be a free show to the public uh we would hit this jump skiers and snowboarders and the whole jump landing and the in run would all be 3d projected so it would be at night and it make the jump it makes the jump look like it's alive it's crazy you got to kind of see it to believe it we have huge firework display and we're all kind of hitting the jump uh at the same time and you know throwing tricks and you know there's music and people are so pumped we do an autograph signing after and uh we we do it for two hours and for two hours straight we're signing autographs like the crowd's stoked it's it's really cool so it's kind of like nitro circus on snow i was just gonna say like like i'm a co-owner in this in this uh in these big air projects like i i aspire to have a show like like nitro circus you know it's it's pretty much you know if you were to compare it to anything i guess similar to nitro circus which is a badass show it's a badass show i mean if you're not yeah. pumped when you come out of that place like, right and who owns that is that pastrana yeah that's pastrana and, and when you talk about like action athletes there that's the, the craziest probably the most successful hands-down action athlete of all time maybe besides sean yeah i mean yeah pastrana is unbelievable super talented and an absolute nut just it, crazy it, yeah like yeah, johnny absolutely. knoxville crazy Maybe even crazier. Yeah, but like Johnny Knoxville with extreme skills, you know, to get himself in like more dangerous situations. Like, didn't he like transfer into the 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 car racing world at X Games? Yeah, he did. Yes, yeah, he did. He just loves. He's kind of yeah. He's done. He did NASCAR too. He went. He did. He did a year. He did a year in NASCAR, and I think he did pretty damn good. But I think, you know, maybe the demographic or whatever, you know, sponsors. You know, it's expensive. (laughs) To do NASCAR, dude, it's like you gotta have some serious backing for some sponsors. Oh, so huge. Um, he couldn't quite pull it off for whatever reason. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, he's got his hand in everything. Yeah. How many people were in the Tokyo Dome? I mean, I, I I asked this question because one of the best concerts I've ever seen in my life was Guns N' Roses live at the Tokyo Dome. It was like seventy thousand people. Yeah. And and you won a big air contest in Tokyo in the Tokyo Dome in an yeah. inside place with manicured snow. Yeah. And I know you won a truck and like 50 grand or something. I mean, it was a big win, but what was that place just packed with, with, with Japanese people? It was, cheering? was it, it really? Was, it was absolutely packed, dude. Everyone had, uh, you know, uh, you know, the Japan flag waving, you know, there's thousands and thousands of people. It was really cool, man. It was, it was very, uh, yeah, it was cool. Well, you know Dan Henderson, who's one of the baddest ass UFC and Pride champion. Pride was was originated in Japan, if I have my facts straight. And he won two different titles and two different weights in in Pride in the Pride Championship. Okay, yeah. Before UFC, bought. and that's a badass. Like Pride is not. I remember when I was in Japan before I knew of UFC. I saw, or maybe I knew of UFC, but I saw Pride. And it was so savage. Like, they were, like, kicking people in the face. It's like, wait, what is, like, well, yeah, what are they just, doing here in yeah, Japan? They, just, they had those big fighting. It was like the original days of UFC where you just have these Grand Prix where you you might fight five or six, seven times in one night. And then it kind of got sanctioned a little bit uh, straighter than that, again, if I have my facts straight, to where it became more, you know, uniform to where there was weight divisions and there was different belts up and different titles. And Dan Henderson, Hendo, who, like I said, will be in here later on this week. He won. He was a. He won two Pride Championships. But my point in telling you that yeah. is that he said the Japanese fight fans are like on a different level. Oh, he yeah. said his favorite place to compete and, and to be around Japan. was in Japan. Yeah, and you there's, there's a saying, "Big in Japan." Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah, you know, Japanese are great fans. 
Uh, they, they, they love Americans. We, you know, we love, we love the Japanese people. I, Japan's one of my favorite countries to, to go and visit. Uh, unbelievable snowboarding. People are really cool and it's ass backwards. Uh, I like Japanese food and, uh, you know, obviously the biggest attraction is it dumps. It snows every freaking day. You know, if you go out there in December, January, it snows every single day. And some of the, some of the best and most untouched powers is, uh, is hidden in the mountains up there. So when you say the best, and we got Tom Rashichuk sitting right here, who everybody knows has it helps us produce and do a ton of photography here with Bandit and yep. Foul Life. Well, he's a shredder. He's a he's a skier. I've told you what him him and his wife Chrissy do. He's always saying that word pow. So you're saying in snowboarding, give me your the best possible weather and and conditions for your favorite day on the mountain. Mm, let's see. I mean, just powder, really. A powder with a good base, you know, so you can you can ride and not be worried about any stumps or rocks or anything like that. Kind of send it, and it's deep enough where you know you could tomahawk and be all right. What is powder? Powder. I mean, you know, fresh snow, not groomed, super soft. Um, and once you ride powder and you're good enough to ride it, you'll understand. I'm sure there's a bunch of people out there like, oh, yeah, I love powder. You know, powder's great. Um, it's what like kind of every skier and snowboarder strives to ride it's just it's a super weightless super fun feeling um it's awesome have you, have <laughs> you ever awesome. done that where they take you up to the top of the mountain in a helicopter and and then do that those like what is that all about is oh that- yeah yeah heliborn and uh, i've done a bunch of that um i've done uh actually we did like a month of that in chile every day <laughs> so we had to like we had <laughs> yeah it was it was messed up but um we didn't have any good snow so like we we already pre-booked, you know, we just like thirty grand in in heli time. We pre we had to pre-book it, you know. So it's like like we have to fly, you know, two hours a day mandatory, or else you lose it. So we didn't have any good snow, so we were freaking flying around anyways. We did freaking like we didn't have no snow at all. So we were heli wine tasting. We were <laughs> dude. We had a sick like uh, we had a sick Chilean pilot uh, from the from the military there and he was such a badass dude we would we would like chase condors and like <laughs> dude oh yeah yeah we had a good time we would just kind of rip around the whole country of chile and chile has chile's has a, a potential to be a good snow oh yeah oh dude chile's awesome chile's really? uh chile um in argentina we go there quite a bit and you know because they have opposite seasons our summer is their winter yeah so we're always staying on the board That's so we're either going there is that the andes mountains yeah, I think so. <laughs> Tom, Google. Tom is the Andes Mountains. What's what runs through Argentina? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need our facts checked. But that's yeah. that's funny you say that because we're getting ready to go to Argentina on a duck hunt. Which oh, you sick. need to, you need to come do that with us someday. All right, cool. No, it's not really someday. Wait, when are you yeah. going? It's not a duck hunt. <laughs> it's a duck shoot, really, because I mean it's nothing to kill four or five hundred ducks in a day. Like literally, are you'll you kill four. You'll me? kill four hundred in the morning and then go kill another three four hundred in the afternoon. What? And. uh That'd be pr- kind of cool to mix a little trip, combine a little snow, a little uh, God, snowboarding and duck cool. That would be, yeah. that's like uh, my two favorite things in, uh, in one trip. Yeah. That would, well, that we would need to talk amazing. about that because yeah. we, we're going in July and uh, our buddy Monty Baldwin has a new company down there called Argentina Duck Hunting Adventures. Yep. He's uh, got a five-star lodge and he's he's got some really badass properties. And that'd be cool to go down there and do an episode where Damn. where we're on the mountain I'll, and then I'll, in the duck blind. I'll Google see if there's any uh, any good mountains you know close by. See if it's you know see if it's possible. Well, where are the mountains? Are they up there? I, I assume in northern Argentina by they kind of just run the whole strip. Patagonia. Of, yeah, they kind of run. Yeah, they you get down to Patagonia, you get into some pretty 
pretty badass terrain, but it's so windy down there. It's kind of where the wind lives, you know. But it's, uh, yeah, I get a lot of riding. I can't. Good would, riding. I guess I should have known that because I mean, I've been I've known enough about South America and the hunting that they do have mountains down there. I guess it was more of a climate deal for me, where I always just figured it was. But then I the movie uh, what was the ski? Was it a soccer team that got in the plane wreck? Oh yeah. We actually flew right over that in our on our helicopter adventure. That was the pilot's like, "Oh, see that right there?" He's like, "That's right where the team crashed." You know, that was the that was Chile where that happened. Yeah, that was in Chile. Yeah. Tom, is it the Andes? Yeah, Andes. Yeah. Wow, dude, I yeah. got my geography. I don't even have Keith Allen here, and I have my geography straight. Dude, my man, you know Keith Allen, huh? I love Keith. I love Keith. I haven't seen him. Well, essentially since our maybe maybe if I not seen him since our first trip in Kansas, maybe I met him there. And we've kept in contact, and uh, he's just an awesome human being, um, one of the best duck, duck callers in, in the world, and uh, kind of goes out of his way to to help me and and helped me, you know, uh, learn uh, learn the intricacies of duck calling, <laughs> and I'm you know I'm still pretty damn bad. You you haven't mastered it yet? No, you heard me here you, before before we started. What the I thought it sounded good. Absolutely, yeah, baby, sound like a baby crying. <laughs> Coyotes come running yeah, in every time. Yeah, exactly. I thought we were duck hunting, Lego. You're calling all these predators. Yeah, right. So you got your you, you win this deal in Tokyo, which I, I can just picture like the just the adrenaline with all those Japanese flags waving and the crowd. I mean, the noise volume, the volume just had to be through the roof. And in you you compare that to the rest of your snowboarding career, I would think that a lot of it was surrounded about that around that kind of energy. Do you like the hunting part of your life because it's the exact opposite to where your tranquility and peace out there in the woods? Or do you like, do you like having a bunch of buddies around camp and cutting up? What do you, what, what, why do you love hunting so much? I love hunting for so many aspects. Um, I just, I, I love the outdoors. I love nature. I really do. I love like, I love, um, you know, watching animals and, and I love getting to know, you know, know their, their habits and whatnot. Um, also hunting is one of the most challenging things that you can't do and you can take it to any level you know what i mean it depends on how serious or how crazy you want it to be you know it's like all right if you're you know if you're talking about um duck hunting you know it's like all right i'm gonna go out and see if i can't kill a duck today you know and then eventually you're like i'm only shooting you know green heads you know or you know or and then for you your case you're only shooting green heads and only if they do it the perfect way like you're you won't shoot them unless you call them in and they you perfectly fool them and they're cupped right in your face you know um you know i'm lucky to get a you know, pass by, uh, shooting the ducks, you know, so it's so much to it. And I just feel like it's a never ending, you know, way to push yourself. And, uh, you know, it's so challenging and I love, I love the adrenaline, man. I mean, like before, uh, you know, right when the ducks come in, you know, it's like, I, sometimes I get so rattled I'm like, all right, keep your face down on the gun. You know, I got to like say these things, you know, cause I, I love it so much. It's so much adrenaline is pumping through your veins right before you're about to you know, I'll pull back a bow on, you know, on a deer, you know, my heart's going through the roof and, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's part adrenaline. It's part, um, you know, the love for the outdoors and the challenge that, that it, that it gives me. So would you say that when you talk about adrenaline and that feeling that when you're pulling back that bow or when that turkey gobbles in the woods or when those mallards cup up, is it kind of the same as being at the top, top of that half pipe or does it not even compare? No, for sure. It actually compares adrenaline you know when i'm at the top of the half pipe actually is not my favorite adrenaline it's the adrenaline after i land like a run or or do a trick that i was stoked on that's the feeling that i'm that i want to 
that I want to get. You know, it's like, but most of the times it actually isn't fun before you drop in, you know? I don't love competing. I don't love being at the top of the hat, but I'm like, I can't wait to drop, you know? I'm more like, oh, I can't wait to get this over with, you know? Really? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, you know? And that's, like, I've never really loved competing, you know? And that's why I'm really not doing it anymore. I believe I still, you know, I can still, you know, keep up, keep up kind of with the dude, but it would be full commitment and it would be no hunting, and uh, you know what I mean, and uh, it's it's such a grind, and also super taxing on on um, on your body, and like physically, I don't want it ever like hit my head. Um, you know, I've had a lot of bad concussions. You know what I mean? And How many? Like, Talk about that. I mean, one of the worst wrecks that I've ever seen on a snowboard was when you came down. What was the? You tell me the trick you were doing, and you and you landed on you almost broke your neck, right? I mean, you landed on your jaw on the top of the lip on the half pipe, right? Oh, uh, yeah, so that was, um, yeah, that was out in New Zealand where we were competing. I went to go do, like, a cab double 10 in the pipe. Just came up. I lost all my speed. It was super uh, super slow. It was during my run, so I went for it anyways. Came up, like, way short. Didn't quite get it around. Literally, just hit. the first thing I hit was, like, <laughs> my face on the lip, and then that catapulted me back. Um, that was a concussion. You know, that was, like, a delayed concussion. I felt totally fine. I was like, oh, my God. Like, obviously rocked, you know, and a lot of pain, but I was like, all right, well, I'm good. I'm not concussed, you know. Then I take uh, uh, start to go up for my second run, and then I'm like, wait a minute, something's not right here. I don't. I'm like, wait, where am I? And then I didn't even know where I was or anything. I'm like, all right, someone needs to bring me down. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> uh, but I've had a lot of those scary ones. You know, I did one out in Mammoth, California. Just started the start of the season. Caught my heel side edge. You know, caught my edge and hit the back of my head. I remember going down to the park like. Ugh. Yeah, I'm not feeling so good. I probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't hit these jumps. And the next thing you know, I wake up, I'm on a stretcher, and I know nothing. When like, was, I'm when watching, was this? I'm watching the mammoth gondola go over my head, and it says mammoth, and I was so freaked out because I had no clue that a I was in California, <laughs> I'm on the other side of the country, or b that snowboard season had even started. You know, when was this? Uh, that was when I was younger. Uh, oh, that this was, was a while. Yeah, ago. that was a while ago. You know, so anyways, I hate hitting my head. Uh, and that comes with, you know, your injury just comes with snowboarding. You know what I mean? So, um, it's all part of the game. Let me ask you this then, Scotty. You, you've been married now for, I don't know, you and Bridget got married, what, three years ago? Uh, two. Two years ago. Um, uh, we don't need to get in whether or not you're going to have kids, but let's say you have a son or a daughter and they want to get into competitive snowboarding. Are you yeah. going to are you gonna support that with the, with the possibility of that type of injury? And are you going to be there on the mountain with them? Do you see yourself you know bringing and i don't know has there ever been a second generation snowboarder that you know of that his dad was like at your level and then brought his son up in it i know you're too young but have any of those trailblazer guys that you mentioned have they ever really yeah it's like almost i've never heard of anybody in two generations of that stuff not really i mean like like i think everyone has their you know all the pros have their kids yeah snowboard but i don't know i'm trying to think i'm hope i'm not putting my foot in my mouth here but i don't i can't really I don't really know. I can't can't think of anyone. So personally, would you want your? Oh son- yeah, no, I, I totally. Yeah, I mean, if if you know, if they had a kid and and he wanted to snowboard and he wanted to compete, you know, whatever the hell he wants to do, you know, uh, you know. But when you start throwing it, it around, comes, the word- it comes. You know, it comes with a price. You know what I mean? Like everything does. You yeah. know, well, uh, I, you, you want to get to a high level and whatever you do, you know, you got to sacrifice and and you know, snowboarding, you, you know, you're gonna sacrifice. You're gonna get hurt. And you got to heal and 
you got to try not to mentally scar from that and get over it. And, um, you know, that's that. When you start throwing around the word concussion, though, and the way that people are looking at the sport of football right now, and I've heard Mm -hmm. people say, I'll never let my kid play football. Personally, if I had a son, I wouldn't let him play football. I think it's just a a dangerous sport of human beings that are a lot bigger and a lot stronger and a lot faster. And I just see, you know, I've seen too many of my friends that have played in the NFL, college football, that are still – experiencing, you know, head trauma and because of all the concussions and all the shots they took to the dome. Right. Not to mention the the, the muscles and the and the, the all that stuff you can overcome, you know, that part of the cripple. Yeah, the physical part of it. When but it's the your head, brain. Head, yeah, when the brain stuff's really scary. Hey, because you know, it's still pretty damn unknown. You know what I mean? It's like they've learned like 90% of the brain within the last 10 years. I guess you know, anything know, in life, you know. we could get a concussion walking out here and tripping and hitting our head. But the odds of that compared right. to going 40 feet in the air on a snowboard on snow right. with going 50 miles an hour or, you know, playing in the NFL and your head's getting slammed on, you know, those linemen are down in the trenches every play. And those are the ones that are experiencing most of the concussions and the yep. head trauma later on in life. And people are like, yeah, it's oh, just repetitive. Yeah, because but the receivers take a big hit once in a while. For sure. Those guys got claws this big and they're just pounding each other's side of their head right. in every play so to me it's kind of like you know do you get your kid into golf or do you get your kid <laughs> like snowboarding is it is the extreme of the extreme sports right i mean it's you're 40 feet in the air with you gotta you gotta have unbelievable balance equilibrium strength you have to know your body you have to be able to contort your body into so many conditions and that's where i want to go into this is training to be an olympic caliber athlete you can see a boxer when he's on the Olympic team mm-hmm. and he's shredded and he's cut up and you know that he's been burning calories and he's, he's in a, a big time training program, right? Yeah. Well, you are too. When you, when you take your shirt off, you're chiseled and all those snowboarders are, yep. you can't go into that sport out of shape and be successful. No. If, I mean, at least I assume you can't. No, right? no, not at all. I was, I'm definitely at my best when I have, uh, I call it like my winter weight. You know, I, I lose like a bunch of weight snowboarding just from actually being on the mountain probably skipping a few lunches here and there too. But um, for sure, I mean, you, you got to be in shape. But it's more or less just, honestly, for me, one of the biggest things is being light, you know, but not like, you know, weak because you're snowboarding and you're riding, but actually like riding, just riding so much that like you built the, the muscles that you need to build and you have, you know, like no unnecessary pretty much muscles, you know what I mean? Right. Um, which is kind of weird and, you know, you know, <laughs> You know, you have to do stuff to that's also going to prevent injury. You know, if you take a slam on your shoulder, you know what I mean? You got to you gotta have enough muscle and be strong enough to, you know, to take a hit. But, um, yeah. Yeah, like... I don't know where well, the hell I was going with that. Well, I, I know where you're going because, like, you, you think about, like, the Kentucky Derby that just ran this last weekend, right? Those jockeys are tiny human beings, right? right? You're not going to see a 240-pound linebacker on one of those horses <laughs> winning the, the, the Preakness or the Derby. Oh, no. So, but, but still, they're still muscular and they're still in i mean to hold on to that horse and to use your legs they got strong muscle and they're 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 chiseled up and then you take that and you go into bull riding in the professional rodeo or the pbr yeah these bull riders aren't 240 pound men they're built like you you know they're 140 to 170 pounds of just bone muscle and that's it yeah and they're chiseled up you can't be a bull rider and be out of shape right you gotta i mean you're you know that have you ever ridden a bull i I don't think i could do it you're taking it i i thought I've always wanted to, and I think I, I still want to. If I have an opportunity, I really like to. But when I when I was out in Oklahoma, we like you know we're in the uh, in the pasture land, you know, and we're rolling past all these cows, and he's like, "Oh, there's a big bull." I'm like, "Let's let's drive out to this thing, see, how, you know." Oh my god, that thing is just 
2,000 no. pounds, just so damn big, and he did not give a damn. All the cows were running, just sat there, just right up to the window, so big. And so, like, dude, I'm like, that thing steps on you, you know, I'm going to pop. <laughs> well, think about think about the greatest athletes in the world, how high Michael Jordan or Spud Webb could jump and how right. what Pastrana could do. Well, to take a 2,000-pound bull that can jump 48 inches in the air right. and do spins in 360s and then reverse it as fast as he can right. go. And I he's mean, so pissed. The, yeah, and he's mad and, he's you know, he's got, he's got all those strings tied to him that's, you know, that's pissing him off. And then, right. then he's getting spurred. And I think that rodeo cowboys and bull riders and bareback and saddle bronc riders, Mm -hmm. the shape that they're in, the aptitude, the mental aptitude that they have to have to get on that animal and be in that chute. And, you know, like when Lane Frost said, okay, boys, okay, boys. And they would open that chute up. Yeah. I just don't know if I could ever, I don't know if I'm that. It's so badass. It's so badass. Yeah. Like, and like Jesse Lockwood, have you paid attention? I know Jesse Lockwood follows you, but have you paid attention to this kid? Some of these new guys in the PBR? No. Dude, these kids are 18, 19, just rolling up, like winning belt. I mean, winning buckle after buckle. Yeah. And you, you look at them and went, you would go, dude, you look like a computer engineer when I was in eighth grade. I mean, these kids are studs. Oh, for sure. And it's just a different mindset to be able to do that kind of sport. Yep. And that's kind of the, the, the being in shape part of life or, or the nutrition part of it, everything that you had to go through that lifestyle that you were living to be successful. That's a discipline in itself right there. You can't go out and party. You made a comment that you were sober for six months going in. And you know, I, I could tell you story after story about, you know, duck camp and, what goes on at duck camp and the red meats that you eat and the fine wines that you drink. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's a give and take. Amen. I like that. <laughs> and, and I do too. Yeah. And, and I want to do the best that I could possibly do, you know, physically. And, right. I, and by no means would I ever say that I'm a physical specimen. But, All right, so what are we doing? What are you doing? Yeah, you, so what's your, what's your, you know, you want a workout program? You, are you, yeah, uh, I, 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 when I come back off of what you call winter weight and I spend those five months chasing ducks and, going from duck camp to duck camp. And here's how I put it is that we get to a a destination, right? We go to Scotty Legos in New Hampshire on Friday and Scotty's jacked up. He's got the, he's scouted. He's manicured his land. He's got a new Traeger grill out there. He had his buddy who just killed a cow. He has the finest beef in America. And then we got some whiskey right there, maybe for a highball one night or some cold bud light. Yep. I can't say no to Scotty Lego, but here's the deal. When I leave New Hampshire, right. then I go to again. Iowa right. and Randy's like, I got oh, the yeah. finest wine. I right. It's the same with you. Like right. you, you go from one thing to the next. So finally you have to say, dude, it's time to, to, to cleanse. It's time to fast. It's time. To, so I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to fast more to where I wake up in the morning and I don't take any calories in until noon. I try not to go until I try to go until noon yep. as many days of the week as I can in the off season without eating any calories at the yep. same time, mixing in hard stairmaster workouts, elliptical workouts, um, different bike biking workouts to where I'm doing a lot of interval training, getting my heart rate up to 170, 175, and then bringing it down to my nice. fat burning yeah, range. Of, I think that's 135, 140. So I'm doing a lot of that. And then when I'm jumping off the bike and my, my muscles are begging and, and, and trying to get as much oxygen into them, they're fighting my lungs for my oxygen. Then I try to get down and bust out a bunch of different kind of balancing pushups to where I'm using my core to balance me. And I'm really trying to concentrate on, on techniques that my trainer, Matt Pandola has been on the podcast several times. He has just the tech, the techniques to get you strong and get you ripped up without you knowing that you're even doing it. Like we were doing stuff this morning on these, t- perfect. these TRX bands, you know? Oh yeah. Totally. You, know, you know, TRX. Yeah. Yep. We were doing these things to where I really started breaking it down. What I was doing. I'm like, right now I'm strengthening my forearm, my bicep, 
my core, my abs, my ass, my gluteus. I mean, I right. could feel how I was, how my body can do it. Yep. And then right after that, he's got us up on these boxes and I'm doing box jumps and I'm, and I'm, I'm throwing a ball up in the air while I'm landing on top of this box. And then we go outside and we're throwing a ball over our head backwards and then turn around and sprinting to it, grabbing it, throwing it over our heads, getting our heart rate up there. So I, I'm in a workout program. That's all, that's all good. That's hard workout. It's no, a hard a, workout. Yeah. And when I got you today and I said, I just got my butt kicked. I right. really did. And I, I don't want to quit doing that. I'm 43 years old and yep. I want to be able to hunt throughout the entire season. Yep. I want to be able to go to the lake and look good, feel good. Yep. But more importantly, I want to be able to do like our buddy Les is at 70 years old. I still want to be rocking it. And right. people say all the time, you know, hey, we're young. But dude, I'm telling you, life passes you by oh, yeah. and life goes fast. Yep. Look look at you. Your snowboarding career just flew by you from 18 to 30 years old. Right. Like it's like you're like, whoa. You know, actually, the funny thing is I, when I was uh, first starting to be be a professional i remember one of one of you know one of my peers turned 18 i'm like oh wow he's old you know what i mean he's probably got a couple years left <laughs> uh so kind of funny you know here i am 30 still still doing it but yeah i agree man i mean you gotta you gotta capitalize you gotta you gotta grind what when you when you say grind though it's like the mentality that it takes to to have that in your career, right? You had to be in shape to be successful, not just to win a medal, but your livelihood, your money being made was in sponsors, appearances, competitions, mm -hmm. all of that depended on your success. You weren't going to go out and take a hundredth place Lego and have the success that you did financially. Right. It's not a secret. So right. to do, to have that success, you had to be mentally and physically tough as, far, as well as intelligent. You have to have intelligence to be able to go out there and put together that kind of a lifestyle. For sure. I think that's also another like, Another point we, we haven't talked about, you know, as far as like uh, competitive sports or even just doing whatever you want to do, yeah, a goal of yours, you know, like one of the biggest things for me and almost like a light bulb moment is when uh, I started doing a lot of like sports, psycho uh, you know, sports psychology work and stuff like that. And uh, just planning out a goal, like say I had a goal ahead, you know, like, all right, I'm literally going to plan out how I'm going to get there. And then what am I going to do, you know, every day to work towards that goal? Um and I like doing it, but I think, you know, people need to be, uh, you know, goal oriented, um, in, you know, in their sport or, or whatever that they, you know, they anything want to achieve life. anything in life, yeah. you know, um, you need to, you need to figure out how, how you're going to do it. You know, you can't just kind of, you know, work harder in a random direction. You know what I mean? You got to kind of, you know, focus and, and figure it out. And funny thing is like, every time I get injured in snowboarding, it was actually a blessing in disguise because I would be injured and I would have a month off, let my bones heal or whatever the hell it was. I would sit there and I would almost take that time to like re-motivate and refocus like my career. I'm like, all right, it's actually kind of weird. I was kind of going down this path, but that doesn't really align with where I want to be. You know what I mean? So I'd almost refocus and do the, do the stuff that I would never have the time uh, to do when I'm actually snowboarding a bunch, you know, and then kind of start off in, in the, in the way I wanted to be. So yeah. So all in all, the 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 mental approach that you had in your in your competitive career, starting at 16 years old, I, th I believe you were 16 when you turned pro. Yeah, something like that. It's which like, is it's like a gray area with snowboarding. It's not like congrats, you're a pro. They don't throw you a party or anything. It's like all right, I guess. Oh, there's no draft. <laughs> there's no draft. Team Burton yeah. takes Scott Lego yeah, yeah. in the second round. This just in. <laughs> uh, no, so it's like you know, a lot of people say it's like all right, so when you get your first pro model or when you first start you know, actually making money opposed to like just getting a salary or whatever. So I don't know, it's tough to say, but right, right around that age.
but one thing's for sure is that you still take that approach, that mentality, short-term goals, long-term goals, and you're, you're applying that to your everyday life now and your success is still coming in your land management, your land application that you're doing for your hunting and your conservation. You're also building a snowboard company called Lego Snowboards that are awesome. I saw the ones with the, the double barrel shotgun. What's the name of that yeah, one? Nice. Is that the double yeah, barrel? Yeah, that is the that's, double barrel. I need one of those signs. Very appropriate. I'm going to yeah. need one of those signs. Yep, you got it. That's, that's, but, as long as you promise me a spot here in your office, you I'm see, trying to find it. you see the corner over there? I see. That's one of my old boards. It's not exactly hung up the way I'd like. It, it's well, in the corner. I took it down when you started Lego Snowboards. I want <laughs> oh, to promote I Lego. That. I needed right. Lego one. You one signed up signed you know your office is sick by the way a lot of badass mounts for for i want to paint a picture for for everyone at home you know he's got all kinds of coyotes fully mounted a lynx a bobcat every every waterfowl species that you can imagine the turkey Lots over of tom's that, head yeah that yeah that's a big turkey Don't see too. that's that's the tom section i love the geese i love the the neck the neck uh neck bands on those those the neck three collars. Geese. yeah those are... see these are cacklers i was telling you about our hunts in oregon these are from right around the Willamette Valley of Oregon, kind of outside of Portland, probably 30 miles. Yep. And you could see, look at the beak size and the neck oh, size, the tiny. head size. Yeah. Little subspecies of the Canada goose. Yeah. But did you get my joke, Lego? This is my Tom section over here. <laughs> yeah. See the Tom on the yes, Tom over I get here? It. Tom smile over here. Tom can gobble too. But yeah, the op- some, I gotta I gotta learn how to owl hoot. Oh it's you a, got one? <laughs> Oh, oh! So is this your puppy? That, yeah, that's, dude. That's your puppy's Duff. so cute, isn't he? Come here, Duff. Duff. I have a Brad Arrington is our dog trainer with Mossy Pond. Yep. He's a partner of ours in Georgia, Mossy Pond Retrievers, and uh, we got a puppy from him a couple years ago. He's a black lab. We named him Axel because you know Guns and Roses groupie. Yeah. So Duff is a yellow lab, and he's the bass player at Guns and Roses. Duff McKagan, and then our next black will be Slash. You nice. Know, we're gonna have, yeah, we gotta, yeah. We got to complete the band, you know. Absolutely. But yeah, Dude, he's a little nugget, man. He's isn't cute. He cute. Yeah, he's gonna yeah. and he's gonna be the most savage hunting dog out there. Yeah, he's out of a kennel in Auburn, California. Jody Duncan. She's, nice. She's a badass. What's a dog like that cost? Um, come on, come on, people, people out there want to know. You know, we need to get into some details here. Right around the two, the two mark. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But by the time Brad's <laughs> two dollars, not bad. By the time Brad's done with them, yeah, I've seen. I mean, I've heard stories of these dogs being like racehorses. You know, and I'm just oh, like, yeah. wow. Yeah, totally. You know, I guess when you have that kind of disposable income and you say I want a high powered lab, right? I guess money's not <laughs> high a, powered a, a, a yeah high powered lab. Yeah, for sure. That would be the name of my kennel, high powered. Yeah, I need a, I need a um a retrie- I need a retrieving dog. As, as of right now, I'm. You know, a lot of swimming um, and kayaks to retrieve the ducks. Uh, fishing poles. Not joking. Uh, I'm not. I'm not joking. You need to get a lab. You want me to hook you up with Brad? The thing is, uh, I don't think wifey wants another one. We have a Jack Russell Terrier, and I love that little nugget, dude. He's um, he has he's a tracking Insta- dog. He has his own Instagram account, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Official the camel the dog. Camel um, the dog. Yep. So he's a tracking dog uh, for the state of New Hampshire, and dude, it is so much fun. So if someone, you know, someone shoots a deer and they can't find it. Uh, they'll call us and, uh, and you know, we'll go we'll help them, help them track it. Are you being uh, serious right now? I swear to God. Yeah. It's awesome. So he went, uh, we did, we did 13 tracks last year and, uh, he went seven for 13, uh, uh, you know, finding, finding the deer. He did a great, great job. He's been doing it for, uh, for three years now and, uh, it keeps getting better and better. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's like when someone shoots a deer and it's like, I know how important it is. It was for me. It's like whenever I, you know, wounded deer and I couldn't find it, it's the worst feeling in the world. You know what I mean? Uh, to go and help someone find it, you know, with a dog, 
and to utilize like man's best friend, like they love it, you know, just like your dogs love to go retrieve. Um, it's a lot of fun. I'll, I'll pass up hunting sometimes to, to take my dog on a track to help someone, you know, find their deer. So yeah, my cousin Thomas has a, a coos deer and mule deer service in Sonora. Oh, sick. And it's real thick and heavy brush down there. Yep. And he has a Jack Russell that, that he carries on every hunt. Nice. And he'll film him and he'll be, he'll just take that blood trail and he'll go into those thicks and find those bucks that, um, you know, very easily could like what you're saying, you could lose them. I've heard stories of guys thinking they made the perfect shot in their tree oh, yeah. stand and never finding that deer. And it's just such an empty feeling. Even like when I would cripple a duck back in the day. Right. And sometimes it still happens, but I mean, we make every effort in the world to go get them. Sometimes you don't and you just think, man, that's not cool. You know, I know it's just, yeah, you a- just have this pit in your stomach, you know, and like, but I think that's good. You know what I mean? I think that's what that hunters need to have. You know, you need to have compassion for the animals. Like whenever I shoot a shoot an animal, I want to end its life as quickly as I can, whether it's a duck, you know, a deer, a turkey, whatever. Um, you got to have compassion for them, you know. Um, but also, you know, I freaking love to hunt them. I love to kill them. But that's 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 there's nothing wrong with that. And right. that's the thing is that right. if you if you break it down and you know we we do have a responsibility to end their lives ethically as fast as we can if we're gonna if we're gonna point a gun at them or an arrow and shoot it at them and try to kill them to eat them then we have to make sure that it's an ethical shot we don't want them to suffer and the other thing that you said is the compassion that a hunter has for if you don't have compassion for the animals you're chasing then you shouldn't even be doing it all the way down to predator calling right people say f a coyote no a coyote is a badass animal. Right. I promise you, it's it probably is, the it most is. adaptable animal in the world. Oh, you put one on the North well, Pole. It is, right? It's got to be. I mean, they they, literally, the U.S. government cannot get rid of them. They tried their best. And the, the, actually, the biologist uh, came over uh, you know, at, to my house. And he's like, he's like, well, he's like, I'll be honest. He's like, you really, you can't really control the coyote population. You know, I don't know, whatever it is. You know, it's like you shoot like, you shoot the, the lead, the alpha female. You know, if you shoot that female, then... <laughs> Uh, you know, then all the other uh, females that weren't really breeding are now breeding again. I think that's kind of what he was telling me. But um, they're so, you know, they're a badass animal. They're super adaptable. And you, st- and even when you're shooting a, a mangy old coyote, you know, you have to have compassion for it yeah. and respect for it. We're ending something's life. We're in- right. ending an animal's life. And I think, you know, on, I say it all the time, you know, the heart of a hunter and the, the compassion that we do have. And, and, the, and, and on top of that, we've talked about here before with the amount of money and the conservation efforts that go in th- from a hunter's checkbook, whether totally. you're just buying a duck stamp or, you know, when you're building a food plot that's going to supply that animal nutritional value. There's a lot of ways to look at it. Are you baiting? Well, I don't know. A deer's coming there. He might not have came to that exact area of that piece of property at that time when you happen to be in your tree stand. And you take a deer off of that food plot. But how many deer and other animals are thriving off of that nutrition throughout right. the year? Same with right. the duck property. Um, there's a lot of that arguing going on and legislation going on is, can't should you be able to hunt ducks over flooded corn? And should you be able to hunt them over flooded rice? And is 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 baiting a deer, a white-tailed deer with a, with a feeder in Kansas the same as building a food plot in Iowa? I don't want to get into those kind of arguments because I look at it like, hey, we might take a few of them out of the ecosystem, but the amount of work that goes into those properties and the amount of nutrition value, habitat value, making them ha- having a better place to live, right. that's way bigger than that one deer that you take off there. I'm not taking that one deer for granted by yep. any means, but what do we do once we kill that deer? We process it, we butcher it, yep. we, we feed our family and friends. Right. So th- the way I look at it's it, a, it, it's the best like renewable resource America has, you know? Uh, one of them, you know, I do believe that. 
hunting is by yeah. i mean hands down it's, yeah it's like one of how the are people still starving in america it's crazy you know i i'm thinking about starting like maybe like a hunters for the hungry chapter in new hampshire or something like that you I should guess. they have them all over the country i do yeah i would love to do that because i love to kill deer and and there's plenty of them around there's and nothing there's... better than living off the land hippies are yep. starting to do it again and they say you know that you know it's cool to be organic and level and hunters right. have been doing it forever yeah and then you take that on what you just said and you compound it by saying all right well now there's some states like Alabama, I think you can kill like 50 or 60 deer a season in like yeah. one, whatever. But if you can take that and bring it to a shelter or bring it to a locker right. and get it processed to feed the homeless. Yeah. You know, it's all delicious. It's all organic. It is super high in protein. There's no fat. It's, no enzymes, no additives. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, it's just like, dude, you can't you know? eat better. Right. And, and, you know, it brings what I was doing some events I mean, back in the day. I made myself hungry. <laughs> I was doing some events back in the day called uh, Hunt, Fish, Feed. But the Sportsman's Channel, uh, we, we were, one of them was in San Diego. And we were feeding the homeless down there. And it was kind of like 08, 09 when, that cool. was, when the recession was hitting. And there was people I met in Line Lego that had literally lost their house within the last 60 days. Families of four and five people that had a nice house right. that lost them due to those. Remember the banking thing and the mortgage crisis yeah. and all that was going on? Yep. And there, where I'm going with this is that there was actually protesters throwing things at us going in. Oh there was lines of protesters that knew this, this hunting initiative was coming to right. San Diego. That's unbelievable. And we had a line a mile long of homeless people that did not have a meal to eat. Right. And we were making them elk tacos, mule deer pastas, and right. we were back there serving it to them. And what a cool thing that you awesome. can do. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I think that's so badass. Like I'm like, I'm hyped on that. You know, like you're going out doing what you love and, and then you're able to give back, you know, like uh, in so many ways. Hunting gives back in so many ways. To the animal and to people. And to the animals, yeah, and to the people. And uh, like you're saying, you know, all the money that, uh, you know, that, that comes from hunting goes to conservation. Uh, that excites me, you know. There, there's a lot. There's, there's a, a ton of different ways to me i get choked up a little bit not choked up but i get fired up when i talk about this because there's a ton of ways to get to know somebody you can go golf 18 holes and they say there's no better way to get to know somebody and, and golfing whatever it's it could be cool i get it yeah but to be a hunter and to have that brotherhood and that union of what it means to understand that language that we speak you know to the, how we talk to each other how totally. we communicate with the animals and now you put on top of that the conservation part of it the feeding the homeless part of it the ability to supply and be a provider for your family and your friends and, and to, to provide that healthy, subs, sustainable meat source that you have to be good to consistently do it. You have to hone your skills to consistently do it, or you yep. have to be friends with somebody that is. Right. Because I got lots of friends that send me halibut and, and different kinds of yeah. fish and, and wild game, and I eat every bit of it. So. Yep. I, I, I get fired up about it because there is no better way or no better lifestyle in my opinion. I'm not saying that to be a hunter is the ultimate goal in your life. I'm not saying that if you don't hunt, you suck. I'm not saying that, right. but I always say, don't judge us just because we hunt these antis that want to hate on us yeah. that, you know, we don't need to give them a lot of a time or attention, but what yeah. better lifestyle is there? And you just explained it in a nutshell. Yeah. We get to go out and enjoy our day, see mother nature at its yeah. finest, harvest a couple animals ethically. Yep eat those animals or supply that food to the homeless shelter, the people that might not be able to afford a meal. Right. What's better. Right. There's, there's nothing better in yep. life to me. Yep. And if we, where I'm going with that now is 
you got into a little bit of, of, of some controversial political things with some sponsors in your day because of your support yeah. for, um, you know, I just came from Dallas from the NRA convention, 2018 yep. NRA. It was a success. It was awesome. A lot of protesters, you know, the things that are going on with mass shootings and, and gun laws around here and I, and at around the country. And I, and there's, we don't need to get into the politics about it, but the NRA yep is strong and I'm a yep. member, I'm a life member. I know that yep. you're a member and you, you've gone through it to where you've made, you made it known that you, that you backed and supported the second amendment of our constitution and right. your NRA and you were kicked off. You were fired. From yeah. cer- and you said you were given the ultimatum. You take down the posts or you're done with our brand. And you said, yeah, see you later. Yeah. It was, it's crazy. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to mention the, no, I don't know, want the, you to the, uh, the company, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just quite silly. It really is. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know not much to say about it, you know. I'm like, there's no way in hell I was, you know, gonna take down the po- you know what I mean? Like I mean like, you know, that's that's something I truly believe in, you know what I mean? And uh you know, I don't know. Well it's, it's hun- I guess hunting for some people, you know, and guns for some people is so polarizing. It's like, you know, it's like religion and politics, you know what I mean? It's right up there, you know. Um you know, I I I really wish it wasn't, you know, because it's I love them. I love taking one of those people that use that word polarized. And I've done it. I've been lucky enough to take people on their first hunt or their first time out in the hills to go plinking around with a yeah. rifle and shoot. Yep. And when they do it, whether yeah. it's a handgun or a shotgun or a right. rifle or bow, when they do it, like Tom right here, mm-hmm. he's never hunted, but yep. he shoots. And then last week or two weeks ago in Mendez or whenever Mendez was up here, Mendez and Tom went out and shot their bows. Nice. And Tom literally will not leave me alone about getting him set up with a uh, bow now. I'm going to go shoot after this, dude. I won't, I'll, I'll shoot with you. So nice. we'll have a little competition oh, boy. for dinner. Yeah. But my point is, is that every time I've taken one of these new quote unquote newbies out, hooked. Right. Not just like we do these conservation efforts with agencies like the California Waterfowl Association. We did this thing with uh, Cal Davis, yep. University of California Davis this year and their their biology program and, and specifically their waterfowl biology program to where we took a first time hunter out. She'd never been in the blind, but she's been studying about it. And she literally texts me once a month now. When's our hunt uh-huh. this year? I can't wait. What waiters should I get? Right. She's Think, all jazzed. You're bringing money it. into our industry. You're bringing new blood into our industry. When she meets a man, he might not hunt, but if he's going to be with her, he's probably going to end up hunting. Right. So now you bring his money into the industry. I'm not saying that we need all the money. I'm saying that we need that new blood in this right. industry. And that does bring new financial I know, means. It's so funny. I'm like, a, you know, I want to get new people into hunting. You know what I mean? And, uh, but it's so funny. It's like, I think like one of the, like the new people that I got back home, I got a, I got a person into bow hunting. And uh, it went and bit bit me in the ass later in that season. <laughs> I saw the guy set up at like 50 yards from my tree no, stand. I swear to God. I'm like, oh, my God, that is so classic. Did he really? Uh, but, uh, you know, he literally just didn't know I was there. Um, but, um, you know, that kind of stuff happens. But I totally, uh, it's kind of funny. <laughs> he, you, you, it's an educational thing, I think, that you you start to learn. There's so much to learn. There is. So and, and, much and, to learn. And those little mistakes like that are going to be made. And I talk about it all the time, how... Um, as you mature in your hunting career, that the real things, the the important things really start to become more evident. And it's not about that stack or that pile of dead, you know, dead birds or a huge deer, 185 inch. I like, don't get me wrong. I'm just like you. I like to hunt. I like to call them in. I like to shoot them. I like right. to kill them. I like to eat them, but you just, you just want to do it your way. Now yeah, you've yeah. you know, gotten to a point where you want to, 
you want to do it with a with a bigger purpose in mind. Yes. You know, and I respect that. That's awesome. It, but don't you think in your hunting career, the earlier that you can realize that, and I want everybody to, to experience those big hunts, those ups and downs of hunting, because there's a lot of days you go out there and fail and you have to find that one thing in that hunt that's going to bring you back. For sure. Like you'd be in competition and you might have the worst five runs or however many runs you would do, mm-hmm. but you might hit one trick on that last run. You already know that you're out of metal contention. You might hit one trick that you go back and say, yeah, I'm ready for the next competition because yeah. I got the confidence off that one trick. For sure. So with, with that being said, you have, you have that motivation in your hunting career to, to see bigger things, feeding the homeless, getting kids involved, getting women involved, working with California waterfowl or ducks unlimited or Delta right. or Mule Deer foundation, whoever it is, you start to, you start to really see the bigger picture of things. And that's what totally. I love about hunting is that when I go to duck camp now, I'm not so fired up to to kill a hundred ducks i want to see a hundred ducks do it perfect in the decoys right <laughs> and like last week in iowa we're turkey hunting i had my little nine-year-old buddy mullet in between my legs yeah miss a turkey and mullet? he was sh- mullet we call him i love it <laughs> he's a stud but anyway his dad chad freeberg is a police officer in council bluffs iowa and stud dad just a great family like i'm talking like just stud wrestlers football players hunters but to see his excitement and his anticipation and his body shaking the way it was. Yeah. That's what, that's what we got to find again as adults in hunting is how do we get those shakes? Oh, bro, again? I still shake. I shake I'm all not the time, joking, dude, but that's because we understand the gist of hunting, right? You can't just go out and walk up and jump, shoot a bunch of wood ducks and get the same shakes that you get of developing a little hole and having those wood ducks come into your decoy spread and seeing a kid or your wife raise a shotgun up and shoot their first duck or you and your buddies have a heck of a memorable hunt off of that hole. Yep. There's just different things that I look at in the hunt now that make it fulfilling to me. And I think that anything in life, like with your snowboarding career now, you're not done. You're giving back. You're still out there. You have youth camps. I know that you're an instructor in New Hampshire on some mountains back there. You go... You you have a Scotty Lego week that sells out every year, correct? Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're still instructing and getting new blood involved in the sport. And with that, with that mentality, I think that that's what hunters do on a daily basis. Totally. I don't think they look at it any other way. And right. if we are, I think that we're in it for the wrong reasons because a limited ducks is really not that big of a deal. Right. And I've heard you say like, you know, well, we should maybe for you. No. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? I, no, I understand I know. what you're oh, saying. For sure. Of course. Of course. Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. It's just like hunting is, and the way I look at it too, it's like, if you want to get like a kid into something great, you know, like a team sports are great, you know, absolutely. But a passion that's going to be with them for the rest of their life, it's got me hooked. Like, you know, that I have been such a little kid. And I swear to God, since I've been little, my passion has actually increased more and more. Uh, and now I'm passionate about, I'm more passionate about hunting now than I, you know, than I ever have been. Um, but it's such a wholesome sport. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like this, this day and age is, is different. You know what I mean? Like it's a different world, you know, um, there's even with technology, you know what I mean? And it's just great to like really bring it back to the roots and disconnect from everything. Not to sound too deep, but really is, you know what I mean? Like, 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 like a young kid growing up now who knows how to run an iPad, uh, you know, before he's, you know, five, like, super good um it's a whole different world you know and i think like hunting's a you know yeah because you know you, you think about it's like something that really brings like hey, this is yeah this is you know this is real life you know here too you know and this is you know you this dr- brings it back to the roots our buddy drake white um uses the term disconnect to connect 
And if you think about it, the real connection that you're making when you're out in the woods is way more important than connecting to the internet. And with today's, you know, and we're just as guilty as anybody with social media no, and, yeah, I mean, and building brands and posting pictures. No doubt about and, it. But really, what does it mean to, to American society if you can't, you can't live without that cell phone or that iPad and you can't live without looking at your Instagram account to see how many likes you got or how many people comment on a picture? 10 years ago, we never even had to worry about that kind of stuff. And I think that it breeds the wrong message into hunting. I, I, we do it. Don't get me wrong. And I hope that our messaging right. is the lifestyle is the one that you want to be living as a hunter. Right. But I don't want it to get to where it builds like this, this ego into hunting, like rah, rah, look at the ducks we killed or rah, I, you know, I'm the best mule deer hunter in the world. Right. I, I don't think, I think that if you develop an ego, because well, I think that's just, you know, certain people will throw that vibe out. Certain people won't, you know, some people are, we'll do that. You know, there's no, no denying it, you know? But I mean, do you find it weird that somebody could develop an ego by being a good hunter? Like you're, you're, you are shooting a deer from a tree stand that you, deer don't look up very rare, very often. Right, right. You're shooting a bow that's engineered to shoot at 400 feet a second consistently now. Yep. You're shooting arrows that could go through the biggest building in America, through an airplane probably. <laughs> right. You are hunting on leases. I mean, there's, there's so much that goes into it. And I'm not saying that you can't go out in public land and kill it. It's happening every day. Yeah. But what it's not brain surgery. It's not that we're right. over fighting for our freedoms. It's like, we're, we're literally up in a tree stand where a deer barely looks up because he has no natural predator from the sky. Right. And you draw back on it. Whoosh, blood trail, <laughs> pick him up. And then all of a sudden, Oh, you're the badass because you killed a big deer. No, that's not what it's about. It's right. about, everything that went into that moment to exactly. if you could hit rewind what were you doing in bed the night oh before? right that right exactly yeah it's about all the work that it takes to getting in there and like and that's half the fun for me too like whether you're talking about you know archery hunting deer or you know or scouting for waterfowl and getting the right getting the right spread and getting you know like everything i mean jesus there's, there's so much to it you know what i mean uh it's all about the whole whole preparation and i love the preparation you know that's just as fun uh fun for me too exactly so i i would be damn i would guess that i would never run into scotty lego and have him big league me or be condescending about hunting like you wouldn't let me big league you anyway (laughs) the day that i big league you that'd be amazing rolling here what's up chad hey heads up man seriously dude i'm doing something important chad seriously get out of my way <laughs> yeah, Chad, would you please remove yourself from the camera? This yeah. is not yeah. your show. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying is that I just that we got to get it ingrained in people that this is something that is to be shared and we're blessed to do it and the entitlement part of it pisses me off. And like you you know it used to be there to like, "Hey, I was here first. This is my spot." Well, there's a respect that you learn and there's ethics that you learn and there's protocol that you learn. Right. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like when you are in a bowling alley and the guy next to you is bowling, you're not supposed to like step up and bowl. So you're not in his side vision. Yep. Can somebody help me with that word I'm looking for? Is there a word for that? Yeah. Hey, Clay. Etiquette. etiquette. Oh, okay, so oh, I thought it was like a bowling specific word. No, but for, etiquette, like in yeah, snowboarding, etiquette, you don't right, like of drop in right on top right. of somebody. Yeah, we call right? it, we call it mountain etiquette. Mountain etiquette. You know, we were actually the people who live in the mountains and respect the mountains. You'll go to a mountain town, you don't see any trash. You know what I mean? There's no trash. You know what I mean? People do not litter in the mountains, and and people don't hang out in the landings of jumps, and uh, you know don't cut people off, and it's just mountain etiquette. You know. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, for sure, everyone has to have. Have you good ever etiquette. ran across somebody that doesn't have it? All the time. Yeah. And those all are the, the guys. Time. That yeah, need... it's like the people who like try to bring localism, you know, to their local hill. I hate that shit. I hate it. You know, it's like, oh, like this is my mountain. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you know what? It's mine today. I bought the ticket. You know, or, you know, it's just like I don't like I don't like localism, but um, yeah, bad mountain etiquette. You know, you'll go to like, you'll go to like. You know, smaller mountains in around New Jersey, you know, where like a lot of city city kids are coming up and the whole mountain is trash. It's unbelievable. If you go up to like Mountain Creek, it's, it's hilarious, actually. Like there's so much trash on the mountain. It's like those people don't have mountain etiquette. They don't get it. You know, they don't get it, you know. And when you you apply that to hunting, it's the same thing. You're hunting a public area. There's etiquette. You don't go set up on top of somebody. Right. You don't run your four-wheeler through somebody's stand. There's there's things that you learn that that make you an all-around better hunter and conservationist. I think and it, it might take several years to get there. But I think if you are surround yourself with the right influencers that have been there, done it, and they understand about that there is a bigger picture than racing to a duck hole in the flooded timber of Arkansas in the Biomeda and actually getting in a wreck in your boat because you're so aggressive and so right. just out of your world, you know, like you're driving with such recklessness that, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like you're going to kill a green headed duck and I get it. You love seeing him come in and you are from Arkansas and you're that's, you have the right to be there more than a guy from Nevada has to be there. My etiquette's like, Hey, I'll wait till you're done and go in there after and hunt him from nine right. to it's one. It's going to be more pleasurable. Cause I don't like, I don't like jockeying for that anyways. You know what no. I mean? That takes the, the pleasure out of it for me, you know? Uh, I actually like I you know I'm missing opening day for Turkey uh, back home. Um, it opened on what's today, Monday. Opened yeah. on Saturday. I'm actually kind of excited, you know, because I knew there was going to be a bunch of people in the woods, and I kind of want to just go off into some big pieces and kind of just not run into a hunter and just kind of go and have a peaceful peaceful hunt too. You know what I mean? So like I like, I don't know, you know, I don't like jockeying for for spots like that, like. To rally to a to a duck blind to beat someone else, like, ugh, I hate it. You know, I really do hate it. You know, and I get it. I understand if you're, you know, that's your one day of the week that you get to hunt and you want to get in a good spot. Right. You got to get there earlier. Yeah, be the first in line. Get up earlier and, and get out there in the dark. You got. You can't just walk in and say, oh, I, if it's a public area, it's first first come first serve. You know, there are some places with draws and stuff that where you get more, you know, more access to a certain place if you draw a pill and you right. get a, a top pick. But like where we grew up hunting is, um, or where we cut our teeth duck hunting is more of a, you get there, if you get there before somebody and you walk out, that's your hunting area. Right. But you'd still have a guy set up 80 yards from you. Right. And he's literally, you're working a group right. of ducks. You guys call him the same ducks. You're just like, all right. Dude. He's not even calling. We're working a group of ducks and he might have a spoonbill fly through his decoys he shoots at that duck and these mallards that we're working right. because we've tried to hone our skills, they're gone. Right. That we don't have a chance anymore. And that's what you, you know, when you're hunting public area, you got to keep in mind, Hey, let's try to make it the best experience for everybody out there. If you're not there first and you're not there on time, then Hey, go find another spot. Right. Yeah. But don't go set up at 50 yards for me. That's going to be more pleasurable. You know what I mean? You don't have to worry, you know, you're not going to have to worry about like, you know, you know, this guy blowing his spot out, ruin it for him. You know, it's going to be awkward tension. Um, got a question for you. Have you ever stayed the night before to claim a spot? Yeah. 
How many times? Not very often since we started filming and thank God and thank, you know, what, what we've got to establish with our brands to where we have a lot of people that like entertain us and bring us in and let us hunt their properties. I'm not afraid to admit it. Yeah. You know, you've invited me to come hunt your property. I go up there and it's private property. and We shoot some wood ducks. Well, I get that. You know, we get invite, invites from a lot of different people around the country and Canada and South America. And we're thankful for every bit of it. And if you're trying to do what we do on public property, it's difficult. One, people oh. don't want to see you out there because you're quote unquote drawing attention to their spot right. or their hole right. or their mountain. No, I'll, actually, all, all I do is hunt um, hunt public. You see? Yeah. And, 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 oh, you don't, you don't hunt ducks on your own property? Uh, no. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, I thought you had a little wood duck hole. No, I wish. That would be amazing. I have a river that goes, goes through my property, but, uh, you know, open water, everyone has water access as long as you can get to the water. Yeah. So, I mean, I, we don't have to do it as much as we used to, but I did, I used to look forward to that. We'd go out to places like we call Toulon here, or the Stillwater, yep. Stillwater Refuge, um, public area for duck hunting. And there are certain areas de- designated for camping and you could stay in those areas. You could go scout until the sun goes down. Right. You couldn't have your boat in the water until a certain time. You couldn't do any okay, of that. So yep. everything was kind of kosher in the morning. Yep. But there was a lot of those two, two o'clock in the mornings where you're getting right. out there. Cause you just had a feeling that you, that you needed to be in that spot for the day. Yep. I like that. I mean, maybe as I've matured into my hunting, I'm 43 years old now. I wouldn't get off on it as much. Right. But I still am like a kid in a candy store the yeah, night totally. before any hunt. Yeah. I just like, I just, I love the anticipation of whatever that hunt's going to bring that day. Right. I like to try to paint that picture the night before in my head. If I, I think some, sorry to cut you no, off. You're, I just you're want, fine. I'll just, if I don't say it, I'll probably forget it. Some of, the, I don't spit on the microphone here. Apparently I'm just over amping. <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes ha- I'm more amped and I'm having more fun. Sometimes even thinking the night before planning it out. Um, then I, well, it usually never turns out the way I planned it, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, that's a lot of fun, you know, the night before planning, you know, planning the hunt and anticipation, you know, um, I love that, you know, I love it. Well, there's, there's that's all I wanted to say. No, to, to wrap it up, to wrap that into a, what we've been discussing is that's what being a hunter is all about. The game planning, the, the, what, what is, what is your, your approach going to be that next day? How are you going to put yourself in the best position to become successful? We all want to be successful. We can sit here and talk until we're blue in the face about well hunting camp it means this and it does i love everything that goes into a hunt but i still love the successful part of a hunt and it might just be one duck doing it the right way it might be somebody enjoying their first hunt it might be us learning something in the field that we never thought you know that we never thought of before there's a lot of ways to judge success sometimes when you just have a unbelievable hunt and you're and the birds are coming in like crazy and you're shooting them sometimes those hunts get over too fast. They're like, now what do we do? It's like, I, I really like the, just the game planning, you know, totally not that I'm comparing it to a football coach or something like that, but I really like knowing, you know, Hey, we're going into this situation. We're going to have this wind. We're going to have this sun, this temperature. I know that th- these roosts over here, this one's iced up. This one's open. This one's holding more mallards. There are some coming out of this general area over here. We might have some competition in this area. Our hide is going to be this. We're going to have to dig in. We're going to use ground blinds. we got a pit blind on this one. We're going we're gonna to use a panel blind on the edge of a cornfield or on the edge yep. of a pea field. And you got all of these different applications. And that's what you were talking about earlier is that you start going, man, what's, what's this day going to bring? Because think about it. When you drive into that field in the dark or you walk into your tree stand in the dark, you have no idea that within a matter of no an idea. hour or so, you might be standing over 
a deer or a pile of dead birds or some of the best memories that you've ever been able to create in your lifetime. That's what I love about hunting. Yep. That's what I love about it. And, and I don't know if you can compare it to another lifestyle. I know that when you go in and you anticipate a baseball game, you're going, I'm going to go three for three. And, and when at the end of the game, you know, hey, I'm, I'm either going to be 0 for 4, I'm going to be 3 for 3, and I'm going to win or lose. Mm-hmm. When you go into a golf game, you're going to be, well, I hit the ball good or I hit the ball bad today. In hunting, you never know what to expect. In right. golf, you know what to expect. You right. know that you're going to have a bunch of people standing on the sides of you. You're going to be on the tee box. You're going to hit your driver. You're right. going to hit your wedge. You're going to hit your putter. And you're going to win or lose. Yep. Now, I'm not saying that something might not crazy happen, like an alligator comes up and bites you, like in Happy Gil- or in, in in Happy Gilmore, Lord or whatever. Forbid, right? Lord forbid. But think about think about what I'm saying, Lego. He gave it to the alligator, though. <laughs> yeah. He think about what I'm saying. You never know what right. you're going to get to see. Well, I mean, it's not up to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's it's up to the animals. You can do every everything in your power to control every you know, every variable you can, but it really comes down to, you know, uh, you know, the animals, you know, mother you never, nature, mother they, nature. Yeah. The animals could get up off the roost and be like, um, we don't feel like going to where we fed last night. So here's my question. How, how do ducks know where they're going? Did they, like who takes a lead on that? <laughs> lead well, that like for real. I literally like, think about that. Like why do they go to one spot one day and all of a sudden, they're bouncing to the next, like, I don't know. It's like, is that a weird question? No, not at all. I think that, I think that there's going to be different factors that are going to tell. Now there's different ways to answer that question. First of all, one is you have the migratory routes and the migratory mindset of a, of ducks. And there's ducks that are in the four flyways in America, right? You mm-hmm. have the Pacific flyway, the mountain flyway, the central flyway, the Mississippi flyway and the Atlantic flyway. I think I added too many there. There might not be a mountain one, but you have the Pacific central the time zone. You were thinking of yeah, Mississippi <laughs> and Atlantic. Yeah. So those birds leave the tundra, the breeding grounds, wherever they come from up in, you know, in, in Northern Canada or up in above that. And they start to make their way down those routes. And then the, the, there's things that take over ancestral part of their flight patterns that they were in that group of birds last year. And ancestrally, they know the routes that they're going to go. So do you think they'll remember the exact water hole? 100%. To hit? I believe they do. I think you're right. Which is crazy. That's crazy. I believe you know, I think like it's they ancestral. hit up like, at like, you know, four different water holes per state or whatever, you know, or a corn, you know, specific cornfield, you know. Have you ever heard the word implanting used in hunting? Uh, no. And in, implanting is like um, you, you implant ducks by, you know, building a food source or you might, you might bring in a certain population of ducks into a general area because you've altered the land a little bit or so, you know, you, you, imp, you imprint them, not in, I said implanting, but imprinting yep. is what you're doing to that, that species of bird or whatever animal you're trying to imprint. So the year after that, if they know that they went to that area, their GPS coordinates tell them, Hey, we need to be back there because the food source was good. The habitat was good. The cover was good. The safety and security was good. Right. And I truly believe that when they leave that area and they come over that bush country of Canada and they get to Northern Saskatchewan, Northern Manitoba, Northern Alberta, and they start to see the agriculture for the first time in the pea fields and the wheat fields and the oats and everything, you can go up there yourself in September and see what happens when those ducks see a decoy spread for the first time or see that agriculture for the first time. They are in there like flies on, you know what, just they're, right. they're, they're going nuts. Yeah. They remembered it from the year before they flow up. They fly over all this land that means nothing to them. 
knowing that when they get over these trees, like, oh, the there it is. There's right. Disneyland for them. Then they leave there because the weather comes in and it pushes them down. So now those ducks over Montana are like, I'm looking, I'm looking for the the river system the Bighorn River I'm I'm looking for the right. Yellowstone River that that is that is that part of Billings you know that part of Eastern Montana yep. that holds a lot of mallards they know that that's where they're going to go and then when they leave there they're like our next stop they can fly over it what always confuses me is a lot of them migrate at night so right. they they see the sheen of that water in right. the moonlight or the starlight and they all migrate on now I think was it maybe Keith Allen was saying that he thinks sometimes they migrate on a south wind. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I mean, I know that I've seen, I've been part of migration days with the south wind where you're sitting there thinking we're never going to see the ducks that are north of us because it's warm. We're getting warmer weather because the warm temperatures are being blown up from the south from the Gulf area. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, and a lot of people associate that sound like a jet plane. As a duck hunter, you understand that that's a group of mallards losing it. They're losing their air and they're coming from the heavens. They're coming from way up there yep. on a migration day, which usually you would think would be on a North, Northeast, Northwest wind. And they're leaving a, a colder area to come to a little bit warmer area. Maybe right. it's below the snow line, but surely they're leaving for a reason. Their food source got covered up or their water, their right. roost or their day loaves have all froze. Yep. And you're like, what in the heck is going on? It's a South wind. Totally. So I wouldn't argue it. I think that most of them are going to get up in that jet stream with a north wind and they're going to use that to their advantage so they right. don't have to burn cover so many calories. Right. They're going to cover more ground a lot faster. But I've seen it. I've hunted. I've been successful on bluebird days with a south wind with new ducks coming to an area from the north. Yep. Coming from the north on a migration day with a south wind. So to answer your question, yeah, I think that ducks have the ability to remember their landmarks to remember where they were the year before. And if the leader of that, that flock gets killed that day, a new one steps in and he or she is leading them on the, cause remember they got to fly all the way back up that deal too. Right. For the most part, most of them return to the breeding grounds. It's funny though. Some, you know, some of the spots like the reverse migration is a whole different ball game though. From around, around our area. I see, you know, I see ducks, you know, in the spring, you know, and you know, um, you know, early spring or whatever, and they're hit, you know, and there's spots that they would never be in in the fall. Yep. And I think, it, you know, they might, you know, I think some spots are, you know, probably both ways. But so back to the imprinting, if they can positively imprint on a good spot, then they could probably negatively imprint on the spot. So say like there was this honey hole that was epic and you found it and you crushed, like you crushed them there like every day. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, like, can you know, you burn, like, yeah, can you, you can, can you like burn out a good spot like at, over time, over years? Most definitely. I mean, I think that you've seen it in places to where, um, you know, a few ducks might return to that spot, you know, depending on depending on the migration that year. But I also think that if there's a ton of pressure put on a spot, like too much pressure, I think you could ultimately alter the migration route and make them move over a little bit. I, I, I don't know if I'm hundred percent right. And I've talked to biologists and I've talked to people that, that are in the flyways that work this, but why there is a reason why Oklahoma is so good. Now I think they get a lot of the ducks that used to be a little bit further East there going to the grand Prairie of Arkansas, not to say that Arkansas still isn't riddled with mallards. Right. But I, I would say that it's just like more heavily hunted over the years, over the years. And, and I don't maybe. think, 
I don't think that they, and I also think a lot to do with that is the refuge system. As they move down those flyaways, mm-hmm. the government has gone in and secured these plots of land where they can't be hunted. So I think that alters migration routes. I think the the use of ethanol, the, the price of ethanol and the cost of ethanol with the corn production over the years, there's so much corn in the flyaways now that it's easier for ducks and geese to stay in those colder temperatures for longer because mm-hmm. they, they can sustain the them. They have all the carbs. And if there's not a huge snowfall and they have open water, why would you leave? Right. Why would you leave? So I think there's a lot of things that alter the way. And a lot of them don't, right? No, I mean, a lot yeah. of a lot of ducks are staying in northern Missouri now that would have been down in Arkansas. Right. Uh, a lot of I mean, you go to Kansas. I, there's so much good waterfowl hunting in states to where you're like, ah, Kansas would probably be good in November. We mauled their ass in freaking January this right. year. So, I mean, there's there's different different. It's a great question because it's 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 something to where wonder wonder why this place isn't as good this year. Well, there might be held up somewhere up north. The Mother Nature might not cooperate. The temperatures aren't getting low enough. Snowfall hasn't came. I, I assume it could be the same in skiing. I mean, you, relatively speaking, living in this area, somebody like Tom would be like, ski season is going to be awesome every year. We have the mountains. We have the Tahoe Basin. We have Heavenly. We have Mount Rose. We have North Star. We have all these badass ski resorts and ski. Lo- but I've heard Tom talk about, dude, they're, they're struggling. Last year, I think they were skiing in July. Yeah, I think they were. I think I don't know if that, I'm correct on that, but I think in June and almost Fourth oh, yeah. yeah, of July, some yeah. of them were still yeah. open. July 4th. This yeah. year, this year, if it there was there wasn't as much snow. Last year we had like 850 inches broke right. records. This year the ski resorts opened way late. Right. They didn't have enough snow to even open and operate. So, I I think that depending on Mother Nature and everything can be altered. Everything can be, hey, Mount Rose is really good this year, but this ski resort's better this year because it got more of the more of the precipitation. Yeah. I think it's the same in, in the duck migration is that there's different things that are altering that migration, both down and up. I've seen, some the, like, for example, the spring depredation snow goose season, there was parts of the country that were so hot for so long. Well, what does that do? That brings all the hunters, right? So now all of a sudden it's just been altered over a little bit, and yep. now they've moved west or east, and now the, there's – people that have to go in different places to where for many years it was like, Hey, they're, they're going to be here. Well, that's not the case anymore. And I think that that had a lot to do with what you said and in hunting pressure. Right. If you're always getting banged at every time you try to go into a, fa- a false set of decoys, you think in their real geese and mm-hmm. those snow geese come out of the air, they're getting banged. Now there is something to be said about that with the juvie population too, you know, spring snow goose season. <clears throat> and what I know about it, is the best is when the juvies the juvies are too young to mate so they always they don't they're in no hurry to get back north mm-hmm. so the the adults they their clock is ticking they're horny they're they're ready to go back and mate and get with their women right. so they take off and they go up well those are educated geese so the front part of that spring migration might be pretty tough. Even though you're seeing a lot of geese they've been there done that right so then at the tail end of that when those juvies are finally like we had a hunt less than 10 days ago in North Dakota we killed 211 snow geese and it was May. Wow. Okay. And it was all juvies. They were coming up. They're still in North Dakota. They're, they just killed them again yesterday up there. So, <clears throat> wow. So yeah, there's a lot of factors in that too, that where snow goose hunting used to be really good in this part of Missouri. Well, it might've shifted to the West of there now because of the amount of pressure that that part of Missouri got or that part of Iowa got mm-hmm. or whatever. Now that's not to say that every place is going to do that. Those snow geese might return to this certain location every time, every year. But I think you're right. I think that there's different arguments there, but hunting pressure has a lot to do. People that manage their land, manage their property, manage their holes. And then there's places like the Biomeda or the flooded timber of Arkansas that I've heard people like Keith or like Joel Wicker say, when they're in there, 
you can't shoot them out of there. They're coming there. When they when those rivers get out and those flooded those, those woods flood, and those acorns are dropping, and they have that security and that no predators and no eagles and hawks and nothing can see them in that flooded mm-hmm. timber. They're, they're right going there. there. Yeah, they're there. You could shoot them for thirty days in a row if there's a lot of ducks in Arkansas. Right. <laughs> so you know, there's that's again. That's what I love about it. Figuring them out. How can you master this sport? You can't master this sport. Right. You can't master bow. Randy Olmer hasn't even mastered bow hunting. And he's the baddest as in my opinion, mm-hmm. in Western big game there ever was. So there's, there's a lot of thinking that goes into it. There's a lot of analyzing that goes into it. And there's a lot of game planning and prepping that goes into it. And I, and I think that that is what gets you fired up and what gets me fired up. It does. And that, you know, I, I think that if you take that and you apply that to what we were saying with, life and you set goals i really think that success will come your way more consistently if you have that vision and 100%. that focus right 100 percent. yeah you can't be successful without focus unless you're just a, a lucky son of a gun yeah a lot of people have luck but uh not it's gonna yeah. run out though yeah oh yeah sooner or later yeah it's gonna run out and did you really want to try to coyote hunt when you're here tomorrow i mean i really would so i would love to so like i mean you know not every day you have an opportunity all right paint that picture to me tomorrow we're in nevada we're probably the second highest you can't hunt them at night now or you can hunt them at night we could potentially do that Uh, i mean it's gonna be 80 degrees i'm not trying to you know i think your brother maybe you know he doesn't really like the hot weather well i mean no predator hunter really does because it just makes it uncomfortable when you're out there and you you know, when you know it's going to climb into the 80 degree temperature days, totally. coyotes don't need to eat a lot on those days. They're yeah. not going to be as active. Think about us. When it's warm like this, do you eat as much as you right. do when I it's mean, cold? You look at your house pet, you know, on a super hot day, he doesn't really like to eat, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's how it is with yeah. coyotes is that you got to pick your battles. And I think that if you go into a stand and you go in there and call and you show them your aces and you're don't have the right elements on your side, then you're just smoking that place for the good day. Right. I'd rather look at the weather. Oh, so you don't want me to blow out your, <laughs> your Oh, no, no, no. It's over for the season, in my opinion. I mean, right. we're going yeah, in. Yeah, totally. You're talking about puppies out. You know, it's May now. Yeah. They've been breeding, and the puppies are coming out, and and they'll go through the summer raising their puppies and, and eating grasshoppers and bugs and not really relying on a lot of red meat um, right now, to whereas in the wintertime, you know, a coyote has to eat two to three pounds of red meat a day to survive. Right. So they're chasing every bird, rabbit. That's why, you know, you hit them with a woodpecker sound, they'll come running to it. Mm-hmm. Hit them with a dying rabbit or a dying fawn, they'll come running to it. So you tell me, if we go out tomorrow, how are you going to kill a coyote in the state of Nevada? Knowing the population of coyotes that we have out here, mm-hmm. knowing what you know about predator hunting, give me your game plan <laughs> for a predator hunt if we do go out tomorrow. How do you envision it going? Well, at the first... Um maybe look at uh you know some uh well first of all i have no clue of the area so uh you tell me a cer- certain section of land you know maybe check out the the topo and see what the wind's doing um i really like you know if there's like cattle cattle ranches i think i think coyotes you know kind of pile up in areas like that because there's always you know dying cows and stuff like that to feed on so if we could find it you know an area like that farm cattle ranch that we have permission on or something like that um Try to find a high ridge, get the wind in your face, cross your fingers, and uh, start calling. I like it all. Yeah. The only thing that I would not like in that predicament was when you said have the wind in your face. 
Oh, because they right they do a circle, so maybe side wing. Side if there wing. is a breeze. You yep. probably, to, myself and I'm sure Clay would say this is Clay. Come over here for a second, please. Tom, will you grab Clay? I don't know if you can hear me. But we, how do you know? Like, uh, I guess you have an idea of where they might be coming from, right? I mean, like a lot of times they'll just come. Yeah, but just like, but but with the population that we have, you don't want to get backdoored, right? He's going to smell you if he comes from behind you. Right. So if you set up with a side wind, le- left to right, um, you're going to have a better chance of that dog trying to get. So if it's going left to right and you're downwind sides here, right? Mm-hmm. I'll let Clay talk about this, but he's he he talks about he talks about putting the collar. You know, and you're looking at a collar right here. This mm-hmm. Mojo Double Trouble. With the use of that, you give yourself the advantage of putting that upwind of you to where when the coyote does circle downwind, it might be 50, 60, 70 yards upwind of you. And by the time he circles down, he's in a perfect place for you to smoke him. Totally. So So, I get a, um, so hunting on the East Coast, right? Super thick, right? Forest and stuff like that. If you were going to hunt in a forest and you had maybe visibility of, you know, maybe a hundred yards, let's say. Um, and you had a left to right wind or whatever that might be you know, a crosswind, right? So where they, they might be better in a swamp or something like that. You're saying put the collar at the top end of your visual on the, of the, uh, of the, sorry, upper where, where the wind. upper wind. Yeah. Uh, is, and then almost be looking kind of, downwind or question mark you always want to keep your downwind side open so knowing you're going to put your your collar upwind of you so they do come into you but you always want to keep your downwind side open because open meaning like shooting lane yeah okay knowing that they're going to come downwind yeah if you sit at the far end and it's blocked off by your thick trees and stuff that you're talking about you're never going to get a shot regardless right yep so you want to keep that downwind side open to where if they do come downwind of that sound, you're still going to be able to get a shot off. Totally. Okay. If you yeah, yeah, yeah. Off, right. You'll never get a shot off. Right. That makes sense. So you want to have the collar out far enough in front of you where you're not, you know, in that in, wind. In that wind. Uh, okay. Yeah. That totally well, you makes don't, sense. You don't want them to be downwind in the forest. You want them right. to be downwind yeah. in the opening to where if they do go downwind, you still have a chance to whistle or bark at them or lip smack to get them to stop for a shot. Right. But at least you're going to see them. At least you're going to see them. Because in your, in your, uh, sorry to cut you off, but in your, you've done it like 30 mind, times today. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have a, a short term memory. So if I don't say the point that I'm thinking, I'm just, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm going to forget, you, off you know, too. It hasn't worked. <laughs> um, See, there we go. I don't even know what the hell I was going to say. No, no you say, say, talk about that short wind side because it's, it's kind of like the short side of a football field is you, you, you give yourself only so much room on that side of the field, your chances of completing a pass over there. Yeah, you can do it, but it, it's the other fields a lot more wide open right. for a play, right? What percentage of the time would you say they, they come in, they circle downwind? I think your mentality has to be a hundred percent. Yeah. Huh? I do. Yeah. That's it. You just have one play. Just I do. it's hard yeah. to. I mean, yeah, all right. Who knows, right? Who knows? Yeah, but because there's a lot of times. I want a certain percentage. Damn it! <laughs> there's a lot of times where you get 100. up out of your stand and and they do come from behind you, or or they circle behind you, not knowing that, and they got downwind of you behind downwind yep. of you behind you, yep. and you see their footsteps when you know when you're walking out of the stand. Totally. So more often than not, coyotes are going to react to a call. Yeah. Circle downwind and circle downwind. Yeah. Um, they usually do come to a call, regardless if you see them or not. They're curious enough from the sound or the 
whatever you're, you're right. trying to portray to call that dog in, they're going to react regardless if you see them or not. Right. So you just got to give your ch- you the best chances. Totally. So how far of a swing they might do? Is that depending on the terrain? Yeah. Like, I mean, like the cover that they have. If they have like some thick cover, they can circle 50 yards downwind. Mm-hmm. You know, or are they going to go for a bigger loop? It just all depends on the terrain. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, you kind of like got to just hit play the odds and give yourself up to the fact of when you sit down and I don't know what it looks like in New Hampshire, but when we sit down out here, we're usually getting into an elevated vantage point, right? Uh So we'll get up above them, whether it's a little draw or a ravine or a deeper Canyon rolling hills. We like to, you know, park on the backside of a hill, walk in really quiet and quiet's important. It's just like turkey hunt. You're not slamming your doors. You're not doing all that stuff. And you really got to control right. your scent and your movement and all that with predators because their vision and their scent is top notch. I mean, they're a predator. So you got to give yourself the ability to where you're not going to see them all and you're not going to kill them all. But you have to give yourself that ability. If this one does this and he's in my range, like you get out there and you say, all right, we're, gonna, we're killing coyotes that come from this range. And then you got to react to the rest. One might backdoor you. Right. That's why you got a shotgun. Yep. If one gets downwind of you, you got to be experienced enough to not get your your nerves all messed up and just start throwing lead at him. You got to let him be a coyote. He might be just prancing around out there. Clay's really good at barking or howling or you know bark stopping a coyote mm-hmm. by sounding like a realistic other dog challenging him in that area. Now that tells him, "Whoa, I just heard an animal dying. I have a chance to go get a free meal. I'm I'm, you know, light footing it around out here prancing around because i'm oh what if it's not real and now all of a sudden woo, woo, and now all of a sudden his mind goes whoa this other coyote's in my I area i better get on it i better get on it so now you start mixing okay in all so those... you start seeing him coming downwind and before he cuts your wind you might oh for sure okay because cool. once he yeah, cuts your wind a, yeah, he's probably gone. Gone. right I mean, and that's shooting right, around coyote. right. So you got to put it in his mindset like hey i'm not the only top dog in this area somebody's moved in somebody's on my porch and when you do that, when you get them, that's why predator hunting is so awesome with the vocalizations. Because now you can go from just the, the simple little playing an e-caller with a dying rabbit to where, yeah, a coyote's going to come in. Now you start mixing in talking to coyotes and challenge barks and challenge howls and, and invitational howls of a female bringing a, another male in there during, you know, the February time frame when it's getting ready to be, you know, getting teamed up and paired up to go breed. And, and these guys have mastered the shotgunning of coyotes. With the use of the Mojo products, with the decoys, with the sounds, with the patience, but most importantly, the instincts, the ability to let a coyote be a coyote and hunt you. And that's what Keith Allen always talks about. I keep using Keith because, you know, he's taught me a lot in duck hunting is you got to let the ducks hunt you up. You got to let a turkey hunt you up. A guy that goes in the wood and just, and he just keeps, keeps yelping at him. You're probably, you're not letting that turkey hunt you up. Right. You got to be, and I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at that. And in, in, in when you learn as a predator hunter to let that dog hunt you, you're not just going to take a shot at 400 yards. The vitals are that big of a coyote. Right. So I like the way Clay and these guys do it because they're smoking triples with shotguns. That's awesome. Literally triples yeah. and doubles all the time with shotguns because you're letting that dog hunt you. Let it be a coyote. Mess with his emotions. Mess with his instincts. Put yourself up there as like, hey, I'm way smarter than that coyote even though this is your backyard. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to get you today because I'm going to outsmart you. It doesn't happen every time, but that's what your mindset has to be. You have to have an arsenal to be a successful, like I just saw his, our good buddy in, in Dallas at NRA, Al Morris. This guy's won the world's like four times. 
he's t- wants to talk to us about a new competition he's getting ready to start a a different uh different regions in the country it sounds pretty cool don't know if it's up the uh, world's in coyote calling yeah and which elk. is and well the elk oh really elk calling yeah. is on the stage for judges yeah. so is how like how controversial is that you know what I mean? Like it's someone very, judging you on how you call? Like No, 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 no. It's a t- hunting competition, and that's why it's oh, controversial. Hunt- oh, gotcha. And, okay. and predator hunting is probably the only one there is. Duck calling is on a stage. Elk calling is on a stage. Right. Turkey hunting's, turkey calling competitions are on a stage. Coyote calling championships, they call it that. But really, it's you have an area that you get to hunt for that year. It might be five-state area. Mm-hmm. You leave at a certain time. You have to report back at a certain time. And, you, and whoever kills the most coyotes in that time... 18 hours or 24 hours, whatever it is, is the champion. Right. That sounds like a blast. And it there's is. ways that you can tell. Yeah, it sounds there, like a super fun time. Well, it's a blast. It, it can be fun. Yeah. But it is controversial because now you're mixing in money and prizes for the right. execution of an animal. And you have to be careful on that. You still got to do it ethically. You can't mm-hmm. cheat because there you can, there's ways around everything. Oh, for sure. And yep. But Al. A cheater's going to cheat. Yeah. There's cheaters everywhere. Al <laughs> sits down and calls in 99% of his coyotes, if not 100, and he is a badass. And he, and he tr- always talks about letting the coyote be a coyote and hunt you up and not getting in a hurry. And I think the number one mistake, Clay can disapprove of this or not or not agree, is I think the number one mistake we make as hunters is we get in a hurry. And I get accused of it a lot personally of in duck hunting of not calling the shot at the right time because I want to see those ducks just be there and doing it the way that I've pictured them doing it. I don't need to kill them on the first pass just to say I killed a greenhead. And that's somebody's. That's fine if you're like that. But with coyote hunting, I want to see that coyote. And we show you footage today. These guys have multiple numbers, like double digit, 40s and 50s of coyotes jumping over rocks jumping over sagebrush and tearing their tearing the decoy and carrying it off tearing putting that in their mouth and, and carrying and tear, carrying it off with them Mojo's, mojo's like excited uh you know that the product's working great but also they're, they're like all right dude like number 50 come on uh, <laughs> yeah. seriously like, exactly like but you i thought that was I, I know that what is it that's the i thought that was a camera that would be an awesome idea no, that's for a, cool a camera, like a motion coming. sensor camera. You know, if if you're really getting dogs coming in shredding that thing, it'd be really cool to uh, they get, set some, up get some POV. Oh yeah, you yeah, guys do. But they, that what I'm saying is that by trusting your instincts of as a coyote hunter, and it takes experience. But if you just stop them at four four hundred yards and you want to become a marksman with a rifle, that's one thing. I'm not good enough with a rifle. Our buddy Alex Crosby is, but we still want to get them at eighty yards with a rifle, if not ten yards with a shotgun. That's the ultimate to me is to yep. have that predator in your dish and shooting them from me to you. Right. That's that's, that's what cool. we that's what we could potentially do tomorrow, Lego, if it wasn't ninety out. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm hearing well, you want to go tomorrow. I'm already it. sweating. Uh, Why don't you? Take I just it? want to experience some Western. I did, you know. Well, come out when in October when it's good. I know October. <laughs> I'm going to be, you know, that's Skiing, a, that's our snowboarding. No, no, it's our duck season. You know, we open up open up in October. I'll be. I'll be balls the walls back home in New Hampshire. Just well, come September then. Before. I can do September. Yep. Why don't you take him tomorrow just to challenge yourself right up above Les's house? What if you get a dog coming in, Scotty Lego, came to Nevada in May after he just got I don't back e- from Iceland and Oklahoma and he smokes a coyote? I don't even necessarily. I just want to, like, pick your brain and see how your setup is. And, like, you go out with, you know, a dude who's who's the best you learn so much sure. you know what i mean and i'd be stoked to kind of pick your brain and and uh see it in person you know yeah 
I just got to figure out trans- no pressure. Trans- no pressure. School, so no, no, it's not pressure. I think it's a good idea. I, I think that you're, you're the best time for you to come is where you could go spend days doing it, where you totally. could get two yeah. or three days. Yeah. And the and the conditions and the temperatures are right because nobody wants to be in a coyote stand when the temperatures start right. climbing in the sixties right. and seventies. Yeah. You want to stay in the thirties all day, maybe yeah. low forties, and that that makes those senses in the coyote's brain say, hey, we need to eat. They, it makes them more curious. It makes them more contra- you know, more territorial. It may, they're hungrier. They got, they have to do it. So, but then we've had days where you call, you know, you call nine hours and you see one coyote. <laughs> you just never know. It's just, it's hunting. And that's, what's so awesome about, but one thing's for sure is we have them here. We have a lot of them here. Yeah, you guys got a lot. A lot here. And it, it's, it's very easy to get access with the amount of public property that we have. But again, it's all about managing that public land as far as, you're not going to go in there. You don't want to go in there and call the same run that a guy just called the day before. So you got to really like, you got to strategize and say, Hey, this is what we're going to, this is where we're going. We're going to get in a place to where we don't think has been called forever. It's a shot in the dark. You don't know if a guy was just there the day before. Right. Right. You look for tire tracks. You look for, you look for things that might tell you, Hey, this place has had some pressure in them. Yeah. So like, do you think that's another thing too? I mean, we can get super deep into it, but since we're on the topic real quick, Say you call a coyote and you educate him, right? He gets downwind, smells you. You think it only takes maybe one time for that coyote to learn? Or do you think, you know, maybe a couple different, you know, bad experiences might educate him? Or I've heard like people be like, yeah, you literally educate a coyote once. And there goes your chance. It's true, but depending on time of year, like we'll, if we do get busted from a coyote, we won't go back in there in a week. Right. Unless it's late in the year when it's mating, that you can go in there and kill one of the mating pairs or something, and then come back in a couple of days and do location howls and stuff like they're trying to find oh, each other right. again. Yep. So that's a time to where you can hunt the same area a couple of days yep. apart. Yep. But if you get busted, we won't go back into that area for months, maybe, I mean, a minimum of a month. Yep. Okay. So even if they do get educated, there's a chance that in a month, if no one else goes in there and keeps educating right. and calls them again, then. You know they're more apt to they're more apt to react totally. a month later, not a couple but, days later. But that's the mentality that that we have now. That's not to say that Clay goes in there and calls with Tom and you on Monday. I don't know that you're in there, so I'm in there on Tuesday. Another coyote's in that area that was right. 30 miles from there. There, you just never know what a coyote's doing or how far they're going to venture out. Yeah, they have a huge that, range. That's yeah. a huge good, range. That's a good right. thing about coyote hunting, right? You go in one day and you put dying rabbit on and you seem to get run over by every coyote in the country. The next day you do the same thing and you never see a coyote. Right. Um, so you're, what, what's the hell's going on, right? So that's a good thing to try to better yourself, better your skills to see if you can figure them out. Totally. Um, and if, if a guy goes in there and you know it's a, it's a doggy day, you expect the coyotes to react if it's you know cold and you're calling with a dying rabbit and there's nothing going on, you have to change it up. Right, yeah. Someone was Something, in here. Someone's on, right? And and a lot of the times, especially with the e-callers, a lot of people don't know the vocalization or, or something else to do. So they, they just go hit. Butcher it. They just go hit number one, dying rabbit, call it for 10 minutes, nothing comes in. They go down a mile down the road, hit it again, hit it again, hit it again. Yep. You go in there the next day and start doing that. You have to be able to adjust and start using vocalization, hand calling, doing something else to try to react. And then once you find something, then stick with that. Yep. Do you, do you ever, uh, maybe applying it back to what you made your name in, 
you don't do that. You have a certain routine or do, if you're behind five points, do you change that run or your routine or is every routine the exact same for competition? Or have you said, wait, I got to make an adjustment here and put in a huge. No, definitely. Yeah. You have to, you have to adapt. Um, you do. So you'll yeah, change you it. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You have to, you have to change it up, you know, say, um, a lot of times you'll, you'll go for it. You know, you'll have two runs and, um, you know, the best run count. So, uh, it's, it would be nice in a perfect world. You go out and you do, um, the best run you got, but you still have better, but this is the one you're most consistent with. You want to lay that one down just to have a good, you know, good base, good score or whatever. Um, but say everyone's throwing down, say you're in the back of the pack and then all of a sudden everyone just threw down hammers and you're like, all right, well, I literally have to put in, you know, throw, throw my best run that I have right now in the first run, do that. Or I've even switched up my run middle of my run. I messed up, you know what I mean? And, uh, I messed up on a first trick, didn't go as big as I wanted to or, or whatever. And I'm like, all right, I'm, I just got docked super hard for this. So, all right, here it goes. Freestyle. Like <laughs> got to throw a 10 here, you know, 12 here or whatever. And, and, um, you know, more or less just throwing up a Hail Mary. But it does happen to where, I mean, is it, has it worked out in your favor? Oh, totally. That? Yeah. I've landed tricks on accident. <laughs> <laughs> Made stuff up on it. Yeah. I landed, yeah, I landed tricks on accident uh, plenty of times. What is your very best trick that you were known for that you'd land 90% of the time? Like you just stick it every time. Well, like it just depends on how technical, you know what I mean? I could land a back seven, you know, all day. You know what I mean? Layman's terms, please. Oh, so that is a um, spinning backside. So I'm regular. So I'll be spinning to the right and I'll be doing um, a total of two different, you know, two rotations. So spinning two times around. So your feet are facing to the right. Your face is looking to the right, and you spin to the right. Yep. So I'm, uh, I have my left foot forward yep. going off the jump, and I'm spinning to the right. And I do one 360, which brings me down to regular, and then I do another one. You know, so total of 720. Um, so I can do that all day. You know, so it depends on the technicality, you know, and everyone can do a 360, 540. And so it's two 360s in the air and land it. Yeah, exactly. With your right foot forward or your left foot forward going yep. down the ramp. Yeah. So was that trick on the snow invented when Tony Hawk first did it in the half pipe? Because um, he was he the first to do a 720, right? He was the first to do the McTwist. Um, 900. He 900. was probably the first to do a lot, but the one, you know, the real famous moment there at X Games was the 900, which looks exactly like a 720, but since it's half pipe, you pretty much lose them 180 degrees. So, yeah. So... We don't want to get into the math of this. It's really... <laughs> no, I'm trying to figure out the math. Like, I'm, I'm amazed that What's the biggest air that's done on a snowboard now? How many how many three sixties? Is that the oh, big? it's getting crazy now. People are doing like it's so funny. It's like double corks were like the big thing, maybe five years ago or something like that. But now it's quadruple corks. Like you know, triple corks are like the standard, and now people are doing quadruple corks. So that's what four, was four what was flips, the trick called? Four different axes. What was the two three sixties called? Just a seven twenty. A back eight, you called it? A back back seven. Hey Tom, will you Tom, will you type in YouTube Scotty Lego uh back seven? I want to watch one of these live while we're it's, it's can I bring it up on this really laptop? Nothing to watch. Whoa, this is this is pretty recent. You're on your snow you're on Lego boards here. Yeah, so this is um my real snow part. Like X Games holds like a um holds a contest, like a video part contest. Um and so I got like fan favorite for, for this little little edit or whatever. Driver's um so, dude, that yeah, is whatever. so sick, dude. I wish, I wish, a, lot of, a lot of fun boarding. You guys look up. You know you can't see this, but just just YouTube Scotty Lego and watch 
the videos. That one right there was called Real Snow Backcountry 2016 Scotty Lego. Tom, look and, up. Oh, sorry. And they can you can just see the the technicality of these tricks he's doing the 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 cliffs he's jumping off of the half pipe. Put it in a half pipe one, Tom. I want to see a little half pipe. But talk. We were talking at lunch today, Lego. You don't think I'd have the balls to drop in on a 22 foot half pipe? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I think you'd have the balls, but I mean, you, you might. I wouldn't. Highly, I, she I, does not do. I wouldn't land it. What oh, no. is it? Actually, straight up and down at the top of that? Um, no, it goes to. I don't know what you know. It's not quite at vert. You know, you you definitely got to ollie just a little bit. You have to ollie in. Um, you have to. Well, when you're when you're riding the pipe, you have to ollie a little bit. Hey, you want to hear some good news from one of our brothers? You ready yep. for this, guys? Yep, sure am. Chad Mendez just announces it's game time, baby. I'm making my return against Miles Jury, UFC Fight Night 133, July 14th, 2018, at Century Link Arena in Boise, Ooh. Idaho. Nice. Dang it. I want to go to his fight, and I'll be in Argentina right then, July 12th. And he's fighting July 14th. And I told him, do not schedule a fight, Mendez, <laughs> if I'm not going to be able to be there. rude of him. So he's fighting Miles Jury July 14th in the so, Century Link Arena in Boise, Idaho. The return of Money Mendez, Team Alpha Mendez. I'm so, I'm so pumped. I can't yeah. wait. Are you going to go to it live? I would if I were you. I would love to. I, maybe I could be in his corner just kind of misting. <laughs> you know, I'll be like the mister. And the like fluffer? when he wins. Did you just say I you're will, a fluffer? <laughs> no, mister. <laughs> mister? But I will take credit for his win, you know, for misting. I'd be like, dude, I just, you know, big part they of his. hold on to you. You were too slippery. <laughs> So do you know who, who he's fighting? Do you know yeah, who that is? Yeah, I just said Miles Jury. Yeah, he's a little stud. Him? But yeah. I, I'm predicting a first-round knockout. Mendez will just <laughs> knock this dude into another time time zone. Well, Chad's a beast. Yeah. You want to see a picture of who he's fighting? Yeah. I want to get eyes on That guy's guy. a stud, though. Miles Jury's a stud. We should call. Let's call. Let's try to call him real quick and just see if he answers. I got little, I, I'm, I got the butterflies right now for him. Uh, knowing that right, he's here goes Lego. He's going to. Uh, dropping in Scotty Lego. Okay, what's this? This? Is, uh, this is out in Locks in Switzerland. Um, this was the um, European Open. Um, okay. Very slow conditions that day. So what was that? That was a backside nine. This God. is a frontside ten. Um, that's just a that was weak. basic cab <laughs> seven. This is a frontside nine nose. And that's my run. So is that a solid run? I was happy with it. Uh it was a little slow that day, so I remember, like, you know, not going as big as um, I wanted to. But um, All right, Tom, go, since he brought it up, put in Scotty Lego Falls on entry, or what was it? Oh, Scotty Lego Falls dropping in. F- falls dropping in, Tom. Yeah, I did that um, at XCN. It was super embarrassing. Um, <laughs> it was funny. It was, like, trending on Twitter, like, hashtag let Scotty drop. <laughs> but they didn't, so... <clears throat> Here, that was Sean White that they just showed. All right, this is your drop-in. You need to beat 9801. Let's come on, see. Come on, Scott. You can do it, dude. Just 90, don't fall dropping in. 98.01, you, you got to beat. Oh, you, you. <laughs> <laughs> did you get point one? You, you did it on purpose, didn't you? No, I did not. Dude, I just get too aggressive. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Yeah. Because you got a 9801? Was that your last run of the of the? No, deal? I think there was three. I oh. think I actually got a. Um, I think I pulled it together for my third run and, and got on the podium on that one. How many cool. times have you beaten Sean White? Like have think. you beaten Sean White in a straight up competition before? Yeah, you have. Yeah, well, you know that happens. You know, you get lucky once in a while. But no, we, I'll be honest. Been, 
You're yeah. as good as Sean White. I mean, you're good. You're a world champion. Like, it, it, did you consistently beat him for a while, or was it no? Was it lopsided? No, it was no, hundred percent lopsided. He was definitely a better snowboarder, better comp- uh, competitor than me. Um, you know, um, you should. Did, but I've got you, lucky a few different times, and I beat him. You know, a handful of times. Did you ever challenge anybody in hacky sack? No, I'm horrible at hacky sack. Are you really? I think yeah. you'd be good with your eye hand coordination, your foot coordination, balance, and all that. No, like, dude, my feet are locked in on a board all season long. <laughs> These things, you know, I don't really get around. What did you think of Sean's performance here at this last Olympics? The oh, unreal. final run, unbelievable. unreal. Yeah. I was watching it, and Though actually, every one, like the top seven spots, were unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, the whole snowboard, uh, the last Olympics was was unbelievable. Let me ask you this: as far as it was uh, good for snowboarding, you know. You know, when you put on a good show, when you become that caliber of an athlete, you know, the top of the top in your game, do you get like, is his training area in his, like, I remember a video they made of him. I think it was a Red Bull video where he was in Colorado and he was doing all the, in the foam pit. Yeah. Do you remember that? Where he was doing all the training? um, Yeah. Out in Silverton, Colorado is like this pretty much this big backcountry spot, this big bowl. And they, um, they avalanched it set up dynamite avalanche it to get more snow into the basin built built this pipe and it was more more or less to be cinematic you know to pretty much do a piece for for him and also obviously have an insane training ground you know it was you know it's a private pipe um which again that's a that's another thing that kind of separates apart like i would never want to just ride by myself you know i'd want to ride with friends to be there to push to push me to get uh inspiration from you know but sean can you know motivate himself and ride by himself and and um and do great things so so my question is is like when you get to that level the, are you afforded the the opportunity to have better training facilities and like red bull would bring him in like that and that gives him the advantage of having a better i mean it's no excuse for oh, not- yeah for sure i mean and and now everyone has uh airbags you know um and that's somewhat new relatively um to the sport you know that's something where like all right i think i could do a double cork you know back in the day it's like i learned i learned all my doubles on snow it's like well if i don't got it then it's i don't hurt my hell. <laughs> yeah but um but now like airbags are so great you know i love them you know it's like you have an idea and like all right i'm gonna go you know hit it and work on it and um you know see how it works and I, I thought we just had. A, I thought I just messed something up right there. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I'm I heard panic. you whispering. Over, Is I'm, it recording? I'm panicking. <laughs> I'm like, Tom, I need some. I'm waiting for Mendez to text me back because I want to see how he feels right now and see what his. Uh, He's probably getting hit up a lot. Do you think he'll? Do you yeah. think he'll make a prediction if we get a hold of him? No. Yes, he will. Mendez, money. You don't think he'll make a prediction? I don't know. I don't know. So he's at July 14. So he's got God. I'm miss two months. I begged him not to do it when I was in Argentina. Begged him. I don't think he has any say in that part of his career. No, I don't think it's up to him you, setting the date. You I mean, have to go watch it live, dude. That's going to be awesome. Traeger's going to be there and throw him a huge after party, a Traeger after party yep. with all the food. It's going to be killer. Nice. And Idaho, what a better place to do it, dude. Instead of Vegas. Yep. I'd much rather be in Idaho. Yep. A little Boise after party. So what's what's in the future, man? Tell me a little bit what's going on. We've been, you know, we've been talking over three hours, I think, already, and and you know, you got a cool life, man. You've you've accomplished a lot. You've worked your ass off to achieve what you did in the extreme sports world. And I've always, just so you know, and I know you know this, but I've always had the utmost respect for X gamers and and these extreme sport athletes because it's it, a lot of times skateboarding was looked at as this 
you know, this break in the law and a bunch of punk kids that would go and just, and that happens. And, and I think we've talked about the ethics and the etiquette of, of things. And, and, and if somebody didn't want you skateboarding on the, your property, you shouldn't skateboard on the property just because it was a cool grind or a cool jump or something. <laughs> but the mentality of a skater was kind of like that. Remember back in the day, right. I'm older than you, but like the dead Kennedys and all the punk movement and the exploited and all right. these bands, they always had the, like the dead Kennedys had their A and dead was the anarchy symbol, you know, like we're going to, we're going to rise up against right. government. I, 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 think, I mean, that's how, like, that's kind of how, you know, skating and, and snowboarding pretty much gets all their inspiration from, from skate, skateboarding, you know, skating is like leads, leads the way in style and kind of in our culture, you know, snowboarding follows that and then skiing follows us. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's definitely still part of our culture, you know, um, the more, or more rebellious, you know, um, I don't even say rebellious or whatever. I don't know. I mean, just like free spirited, you know? But I think that, I think that that part of skateboarding got a bad rap for a while. Remember skateboarding is not a crime bumper stickers yeah, and totally. thrasher, thrasher. But it's magazine. still, it's still, that's the whole scene still very, very alive. So, so I, we don't need to get into that about the ethics of if a guy's on, if it sneaks onto private property because he wants to do a cool trick, <laughs> right? Fine. Whatever. Yeah, don't, you know, don't pigeonhole me here. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to pigeonhole you. I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you that, but you know, the, the whole, the whole thing, mentality of that sport i think it's so like fulfilling to be able to say that you can do these tricks there's not many human beings that can do these tricks and maybe there are i don't hang out at snow like half pipes is it becoming now like it is in in different other like chase you just met chase he's seven years old he's hitting fastballs off of 12 year olders already right he's you know with the bats and the technology and the ability to train and all that you know athletes are better today than they were back then i'm not saying talented wise but they have the ability to get stronger and fat right definitely so so in the sport of snowboarding the biggest thing is watching someone who's already done it, right? So, like, you know, the sport is still progressing. You know, people are learning new tricks every year, right? So, like, what was the standard last year is, you know, is going to be left in the past for for next year. Um, So, once you see someone do it, that's half the battle. You know, and you see how they do it, and you know that it's actually possible, and they're they're doing it consistently, that becomes a standard. So, you got to step it up, and uh, that's the biggest thing, you know? Um, and then, also, you know, you have airbags and you have uh, – uh, there's a lot of good riders out, you know, nowadays. And, definitely- Tech, and not just physically being there, but technology as far as YouTube. Any kid at five years old can get in and go, oh, there's Scotty Lego. Oh, how does he do that? Oh, okay. Right, totally. And yep. so- you can literally look it up, and, mm-hmm. you know. And, and uh, I'm a firm believer that if you can see it in your head and you can see yourself doing it, um, then you can do it, you know, on snow. You know, so that's, that's like what I've, that I've kind of lived by, you know, if you can't see it in your head and you want to do this trick, it's like, well, it's not going to happen. You know, you have to see yourself physically doing it. You see yourself like third party looking at yourself doing it, like from like, maybe like, for example, like you're like a camera guy looking at yourself doing it. And then you have to see yourself doing it like in real time, how you would, you know, how you see it in the air, you know? Well, that's exactly what you, to go back to what you just said why you wanted to go coyote hunt tomorrow so you can visualize and see how i do stuff totally yeah and i can wrap my head around it too a little bit because like still like i can read about that stuff you know what i mean and like what you guys told me here with a crosswind that that made it you know made more sense to me but like i was still i was kind of confused with like the it's like there's a lot of factors involved you know and then but that's what makes you want to go out and become proficient at it totally 
And that's the thing about, you know, we talk about the art of visualization a ton here. If you can teach somebody how important visualization is and that it really is a key component in training and, and, and putting yourself in a better position to be successful, it, it works. I, I would, I take it to my grave saying that visualization would, no matter what you're doing, if you're getting ready to go deliver a speech and you can visualize yourself up there and that huge crowd out there and everybody, everybody is, you know, what all eyeballs on you. If you can visualize yourself and prepare for that, right. it makes you go in there going, Hey, I got the confidence. You And see, see yourself succeeding in it. Succeeding. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like see yourself, like envision yourself, like, you know, uh, you know, whatever with like a stack of mallards or the mallards doing it right. Or you, you know, on the podium, you know what I mean? I actually like, as cheesy as it is, I believe in like inspiration boards too. And not to be all like hocus pocus or anything, but like, if you see, like you put in, like, I put like my inspirations up, like people who inspire me and what they've done, you know, and I'll like write down stuff, you know, of like how I want it, how I want, um, you know, my goals, I pretty much put my goals up on the board and you wake up and you look at that and you stare at that all day. That's almost just like, if anything, it's just a constant reminder of like, all right, this is where I want to be. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, you know, to almost not get distracted and always be kind of working towards that goal. I like it. I like working towards a goal. It it's fun. It works. You know? And, uh, yeah. So, well, it's one of those things to where, you know, and I assume that, that I will be on that inspiration board or, you know, the Clay's Coyote <laughs> strategies. Or yeah. Something. It's a small, it's a small picture, but you're up there. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you got to get the binos out, but, uh, <laughs> you got magnifying glass. Right. I think that's Chad Belding. Yeah. No, that's not him. Not him. <laughs> yeah. I think visualization is huge in that. And, and it, it brings me back because like I said, it's hunters, you fail a lot. And if you can learn to take something out of each hunt, learn something, become a sponge, to where you don't fail necessarily just because you don't get that kill, but you can say, man, if I would have just did this a little bit better in big game hunting, that application or fishing, if I would to use match the hatch a little bit better in duck hunting, if I would to use the jerk stream because the wind died down, the water looked like cement and I didn't have that chocolate milk effect because real ducks stir up the sediments and the vegetation under the water and it just looks real dirty and muddy when they're swimming around in there. So if you teach yourself that and you visualize it or learn something every day, then every hunt's a success. Every day's a success. Um, you might go, you might go and and do something you know like a social activity and you're exhausted and you don't want to be there but you know that if you go and you and you and you approach it the right way that a door can open you might not have the most fun that you've ever had in your life it might not be a musician that you want to watch but if you go there with open arm you know open arms and an open mind of say hey I'm willing to accept this. I want to be a part of this. You know, that's how I've seen in business and in life and success doors open that way. Mm-hmm. It's the people that are just like Oh, I'm going to get on my keyboard with my fake name and tell Scotty Lego he's a piece of, you know, what, right. because he, because he's, because he, he's a NRA member, you know, that, that, that there's no place for that, right. you know? So I think that the mentality it, it, there, there, I think that there's a common mentality Lego in, in successful individuals. I truly do. I think that if you talk to people that are successful, I think that they have a little bit of the same mentality. It might not be the exact, we don't have all the same beliefs. I'm not saying that by any means. Mm-hmm. But the successful people that I know have a lot of the same thinking particles in that mentality of waking up early, training, taking care of myself, taking care of my friends and family, you know, try, you know, different things, you know, and the the approach, the work ethic and all that that comes into it. You're going to find some of those attributes in every successful person, you know, some of them get lucky, but even the ones that have gotten lucky that have turned it into more success, the harder you work, the luckier you get. 
you create so, your own luck. Right. You got to work hard. Yeah. And you did. You you literally, I wouldn't say you conquered snowboarding, but you were at no, the you top. Can never, you can never conquer snowboarding <laughs> or hunting. You know what? When you talk about your story, your story kind of, and I don't know Sean's story 100%, but I think that, like, didn't he, like, drop out of high school and lived in a van with his mom and dad, and they took him around to ski resorts and stuff when he was, like, 12 years old? And he was skateboarding and doing competitions and yep. just, like, you, you know, you started. I don't know about the dropping out of high school. That might have been me that you're, you're getting that story. <laughs> well, uh, he was young. I actually was... never went to high school. You never did? No, never went to high school. Really? I have a, um, an eighth grade education, which is crazy. You uh, only have an eighth grade I, education? Yeah, somehow I fooled my parents. Can you spell? S-P-E-A-L, spell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that they... Uh... The, the stories have some similarities. If I remember Sean's story right, I think that he oh, was I mean, traveling around the world and his whole family lived out of yep, a van or something yep, or yep, somewhere. Totally. They, yep. Kathy they, and Roger and uh, they would bounce around to, you know, Big Bear and Mammoth and, uh, you know, had the support of his, his parents. His, I mean, without the support of your parents at a young age, you know, you don't have a, you don't have a chance, you know. So, um, so did your mom and dad get pissed when you said, I'm not going to high school? No, I think they believed in me. They really did. You know what I mean? I was like, I was so focused. I had, I mean, essentially I had no backup plan because I could never see my, like snowboarding was my life. You know what I mean? And like, I only saw one way I wanted to be professional. I wanted to get better. I was already missing so much school traveling. I was starting to kind of like, you know, kind of find, find my way in, in snowboarding. And, um, you know, I was kind of getting homeschooled at that. I tried, tried doing some homeschooling. I was like, all right, I'm going to take a month off, you know? And, you know, go, you know, go out to Mammoth, you know, and, and stay with my buddy and get better there, uh, which is hilarious um, to, to think about. But, um, yeah, I think they just believed in me and or <laughs> they hoped at least that, uh, you know. Did it pay off in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, Why? Why is your life so fulfilling to you? What has made the last you're 30, the last 14 years since you've turned pro? And that's about when you're in middle school. So when you're in eighth grade, you're 14. So when you turn pro is pretty much the time you were leaving public education. What has made the last 14 years so fulfilling? What fulfill has fulfilled Scotty Lego? That's a a deep question. (laughs) Is it too deep today? Scotty Lego. Um, I mean, fulfilling. I mean, like, I guess like if I look back at like what I wanted to achieve when I was a kid, I had, I achieved it. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that one. Did you know? I don't know if that's because of my eighth grade education or if that's because it's super deep. No, I think uh, it's deep. I think it's deep to the point to where, <laughs> is it the medals? Is it the friendships? Is it the memories? Is it the travel? Is it meeting Bridget? Is it, is it knowing that your family believed in you and you followed through? And all and, of that, you know, it's all of that from like staying on the right path to not going down. Like, like literally because like snowboarding, you know. Uh, you know, not doing, you know, not getting caught up in drugs, uh, is like a success for me. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, uh, you know, having a successful, uh, career, you know, having the respect of my peers, um, uh, still, still doing it now professionally at, at 30. Um, you know, that's stuff that, that I'm, um, that I'm happy with and it's fulfilling, you know, that's, that stuff's fulfilling. When did you know, like, what was that point in your career to where you're like, 
I'm going to be one of the best snowboarders in the world. Was there a turning point to where did you hit a certain trick or win a certain competition to where it well, finally, you just you don't realize it at the time. You don't, right? You know, That's where I was going with yeah, that. Yeah, you just you're just so in the moment and you're um, you know, everything is flowing so easy and everything seems so easy that it's like I feel like some, you know, and I see this in other snowboarders, you know, it's like they don't almost realize that they're the best, you know. Because in snowboarding and skating and a lot of sports it's, you know, being at the pinnacle is, is, um, sometimes short lived, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, a lot of times people, people don't realize that they're actually on top, you know, in a weird way. Does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense. But that shows, that shows the humility that like, you've always had the same mentality ever since I've met you. I'm sure that there was, I don't think that there was a point in your professional career to where, you stop to think enough to develop some kind of attitude or ego that there's no way that you'd be, have the success that you're having right now. If you turn into an asshole yeah, for being I mean, so good at it, that's it. The people with the egos, like you see that in snowboarding sometimes it's like they roll around. It's like, they act like they're better than you. It's like, dude, that, that's, that's so ridiculous. You know, it's because you're good on a snowboard. You put in the time you've got, you know what I mean? You have, you know, the right opportunities, uh, you know, uh, given to you, you know, you had the money enough to, to, you know, and the family, uh, to help you, uh, at a young age, um, to be cocky about, you know, something like that, where you've just, you're just good at snowboarding. I mean, like nothing, shooting a deer you know? with a bow that goes 400 feet a second from a tree stand that you welded and fabricated yeah. and cut above a deer. I mean, there's no room for ego, right? Right. Yeah. There just isn't. Right. It's just, you're just a, just another freaking person. You know, there's not, nothing that, you know, any regrets, I don't, I don't know. any changes you'd have made to the last 15 years since you've since you strapped on and became a professional snowboarder, any, any regrets at all? Yeah. Where do I start? Um, <laughs> I mean, y'all, you know, I was a regrets, not nothing serious, you know what I mean? But look back, I'm like, all right, maybe mindset going in, into competition. Um, I still haven't mastered it. You know what I mean? Like still, I even do like local contests, you know, I still get route, you know, um, butterflies and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I'm not sure. No regrets. You can't think of any regrets. <laughs> That's pretty stout. That's. What about with sponsors? Do you wish you would have rode for another board company? Are you happy with the 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 way you made money? The way the sponsors? Are you happy with the way you represented these companies? Any any regrets there at all? I am. I'm. Yeah. I'm. I'm I was always stoked with the, with the companies that that I line myself with. I kind of took like there was a there was a um, point when I was younger that I could have rode for for forum and the forum young bloods and um and i had a choice between um forum young bloods and flow which were completely two opposites like flow was considered really not too cool forum young bloods was like kind of like the coolest way to snowboard and i chose to um you know ride for flow um who wasn't the coolest brand at the time they you know eventually gained traction and and um you know, ended up being pretty legit, but um, I just wanted my rotting to, to speak for itself, not the, not the, you know, the company that I rode for or whatever. But I was always super happy with with Flow, for example, and um, for all the brands that that I've uh, rode for. And to put it in a nutshell, you dropped out of school in eighth grade, became an Olympic medalist became an X game champion, became one of the top snowboarders of your time. Well, I mean, when you were competing, there's no doubt you're one of the best out there consistently winning, consistently catching the biggest air, 
and you have your nice little quaint piece of land up in New Hampshire <laughs> that you're happy as hell to be in. Your lovely wife, Bridget. Yep. Your dog, Camo. Yep. <laughs> you want another lab, but you're scared of what Bridget will say to you if you get it. You love being in the woods. Love being you love traveling. You love hunting. You love conservation. You support the Second Amendment. You support the NRA. You have a lot of friends that you've met along the way that you probably go through your contact list or your text messaging, and you're just like, holy smokes, man, I've met a lot of people in this awesome 30 years. Mm -hmm. My hat's off to you, brother. I'm glad I, you're a friend of mine. I'm glad we met at Kansas. I give it up to Chris Amen. Cummings for bringing us together. I know, huh? And that just shows you that we preach this. Since the beginning of Banded, we've preached that, maybe preach is the wrong word, but hunting and is the common denominator that brings so many different walks of life together. Totally. And you get to enjoy each other's company, whether it's one day in the duck blind or you be, establish a lifelong friendship over it like we have. And like you have with Keith and you have snowboarding friends and you have big game friends, you have archery friends and duck hunting friends and right. worker out friends and, 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 and friends that I don't even know about. I don't know what you do on a daily basis and you don't know what I do on a daily basis. But when we're together, we have that common thread of hunting that know that we know we can look at each other and go, let's get in the blind. Let's go get on a coyote stand. We're going to have totally. fun today. And we can, we can have a conversation like we just did for the last almost four hours. Yep. And I think that that's what the mentality of hunters are is that we can get when we're at hunting camp or throughout the off season, we're thinking about hunting camp is because of the relationships like this. And that's why hunting is so fulfilling to me. Yeah, it's is a that, brotherhood. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, you know, what you know, it's special when, when someone else hunts, it's like, boom already, you know, it's like, yeah. I mean, what you, what you said, you, you nailed it. Yeah. You nailed and, it. And that's, that's exactly where I'm sitting right now is knowing that it's may you're getting ready to go to the, the, the northeastern part of the country where you live. You're going to hunt turkeys in New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine. I'm jealous. I'm done hunting until July <laughs> when we go to Argentina. And now we get to talk throughout the entire summer, September, about our trips coming up this fall. And that's what gets me excited. Like, where are we going to be in the fall? Where are we going to get to cut our teeth again together? Yep. When are we going to get to call some geese together? Remember when we were in Colorado that day and you shot that band? You were competing <laughs> in the X Games and said, hey, I'm done with the X Games. You got any hunts? And I just happened to be there right. hunting geese with that Travis and Stillwater at, at, on the front range. That was awesome. You jumped in the blind, you kill a freaking band with us and i was like I what a lucky awesome. bastard but that's what it is and i appreciate you being here and um you know lego snowboards you know scotty lego's got some awesome things going on with his hunting career his snowboard company he has a lot of things on the horizon with apparel his live events that he's bringing to ski resorts and mountains across the country in canada and i'm proud to call him a friend if you guys want to look him up please do because just watching his snowboarding videos are as entertaining as it gets and to know the guts and balls that this dude has i don't think i could ever get there but scotty you the man um i appreciate you being here is there anything I that you want to say you. to conclude this uh dude thanks so much for having me having me here i'm uh i'm honored to uh that you reached out to have uh, have me on your podcast and uh we you know we casually talked for four hours so i <laughs> i don't know if this is going to go into one podcast but uh, this is great yeah we'll um, see what happens so i just appreciate you and and uh and what you do for uh you know, for the sport and, and, uh, considering me a friend. So nope. You're the man, roll, brother. brother. Appreciate you. you. Now's the time when Tom plays oh. Leith Lofton, AKA Haas singing us out with the money's all gone. Lego. We have a song here called what you going to do when the money's all gone. And that's what we just talked about literally for four hours is that if you're chasing money, 
it's not good. You need to chase passion and love what you do, brother. I appreciate you. I'm glad to call you a friend. Congratulations on an awesome snowboarding career and good luck in the future. Can't wait to get back in the field with you, my man. Amen. That's it. I'm Chad Belding. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. Tom, go ahead and play a little bit of that Leith Lofton. Say life on earth won't last that long. What you gonna do when the money's all gone?